we got on very philosophical. Let's get a little practical for the audience here. You said there yeah. are five exercises that you've found basically carry over to all the strength exercises essentially that people care about, right? Right. At right. least most, most people will care about these exercises, right? If you're right. a rock climber, maybe this isn't going to be everything that you need. I would say it's more like carry over to the, the Instagram, the Instagram stuff. So if yes. you want to show like your bench press or you want to show like your plunge or you want to show your overhead press or you want to show your deadlift, uh, this is probably the least amount you can do while still being able to explore other things or exploit other things that you outside of strength and conditioning. It's basically to get you out of the strength and conditioning world mm -hmm. and more to the things you want to do. Yeah. Um, and that's, I mean, I'm, I'm super down with that, right? I want to spend lots of time swinging around in trees and kicking people exactly. and dancing and as little time as possible lifting weights. I don't not exactly. enjoy lifting weights. I just enjoy it a lot less than other things. Right. I enjoy it to the amount of time that I've allocated that week. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, like other things I prefer, just like reading about finance, reading about software engineering, talking to my fiance, going for a walk, meditating, stuff like that. Um, that those bring me more joy and personal fulfillment, I think, than uh, years in the past where I did spend more time in just strength training. Like when you're doing, say, Ido's work or Christopher Sommer's work, what was the volume that you were doing per week? Compared oh my God, the volume was intense. It was like, if I were to do this entire program, I think it was like probably like three hours, like six days a week or something like that. One, like every two or three workouts, you could do a half volume or, and then there's accumulation intensification phase. It was just like, it's just almost like you took like, it's, you created a Rube Goldberg for like fitness, like to be honest, like what I put in, in about, I think I calculated this. What I put in like three years is what he probably puts in in one week. I literally calculated this. So like, you know, <laughs> that's a lot of time I could spend making millions of dollars. Like, you know, like, yeah. you know, like it's, it's, it's time that's, you know, could be <laughs> significantly spent on other endeavors besides being like an animal, if you will, <laughs> literally an animal. <laughs> people, people, you know, I've talked to a lot of people about uh, one arm handstands and, you know, people said, oh, three hours a day for oh, yeah. years or something like that. And I was like, dude, how many belts in jujitsu could you get at the same time mm. for one skill? Yeah. How good yeah. you get at parkour? For one or even skill? like any, any sport, pick a sport. Yeah. Pick Game. a sport. Pick, pick even a mental topic, like make, books make money. Be? Yeah. Books. Like how much, how much finance could you learn? Could you become a software engineer in that time? Like, could you get a college degree in that time? Like, like, like at, at some point, there's the distinction between, you know, animal and homo sapien. <laughs> like homo sapien stands for like wise man or something, right? Like, <laughs> like, are you a wise man or are you just replicating what a monkey can do, right? At some point, like you have to think like what makes humans special, right? Like, and in some, my, in my personal belief, I, I, and I can't say for sure, it's astrology here, but like if we can, at best replicate an animal I think that's saying something to be honest welcome to the evolve move play podcast where we bring you the most interesting and enlightening conversations around movement practice and how you can become the most heroic version of yourself through pursuing movement that's relevant to your nature this is a podcast that's going to feature some of the top movers in the world some of the most amazing movement thinkers and people from fields that are related to movement as far afield as evolutionary theory strength and conditioning and everything in between so if you're interested in movement 
please stick around. And if you like our work and want to support it, please consider supporting us on Patreon because this podcast is completely listener supported. We don't want to take any advertising. We don't want to interrupt your experience of watching the show. So what really helps us get the best thinkers on, have the time to put these together, have the best quality for you guys as far as audio and video is your support. So please consider supporting us and enjoy the rest of the show. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Evolve Move Play podcast. Today we have a really interesting podcast for you. We're going to be discussing the ideas of Nassim Taleb and how they can impact and influence the way that we approach fitness training. Now in particular, uh, my friend Eric Lynn, as well as Philip Chubb, who's a friend of his and uh, has more popularly kind of put these ideas out, um, have approached really applying these ideas in the health world, in the strength world. Um, and then we'll get a little bit into kind of some of the, the way that we use these ideas in more general, uh, in a more general way, uh, to think about how we operate under uncertainty. Um, Taleb is a really fascinating thinker, and you know, applying this lens to the fitness world has built some incredible insights. And in what these guys have been able to do in getting people really strong with a very minimal level of effort um, is, I think, well worth paying attention to. So if you're interested in, you know, getting stronger and you know have a very busy life if you want to understand how to deal with risk and uncertainty um, this is going to be a great podcast to listen to so without further ado eric lynn well thanks for joining me here eric it's good to see you again uh we're just chatting off air you know we we know each other a little bit uh, we ran into each other in the early days of the parkour slash kind of a um bodyweight strength community so you've stayed mostly in the bodyweight strength world and i stayed mostly in the in the parkour world is that pretty much accurate? Yeah, I, I can say that. Um, I'd say I'm more just like, just get some fitness done. Um, I, I squat too and stuff, but not too. I guess I'm not part of like our Reddit uh, body weight, only of that. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't do any parkour necessarily either, uh, but I, I'm totally cool with parkour uh, or people that do and stuff. Yeah, for sure. So. I, uh, I was I was turned on to talking to you uh, by Philip Chubb, uh, the Mindful Mover, um, because I've been interested in some of the ideas he's been putting out. Really, kind of integrating some of the perspective that he's getting from you know what looks to me a lot from Nassim Taleb, um, and kind of that philosophical um, perspective on how we think about problems, really, and then applying that into the fitness world. And and he really said that. You know, he's kind of not 100%, doesn't feel quite ready to articulate it in an interview format, but he pointed me to you and said that, you know, you're really deep in this kind of area, philosophy of health, right? That's what you, you mentioned in, in, um, in one of our email follow-ups. So tell me a little bit about uh, how you've come to your philosophy of health, you know, uh, what the influence of Taleb is, you know, skepticism, rationality. What does all this have to do with uh, with doing pull-ups and stuff like that? Yeah, I think that's a good question. So, like, for me, I've been um, – well, I started kind of, like, I think when I was 17 or 16, uh, into just, like, you know, weightlifting, just, like, read some random stuff. Um, got a little into, like, bodybuilding for, like, just a few months. And then got into more, like, uh, powerlifting for, like, a few months. Uh, in 2007, started a little CrossFit back when, you know, the site was crossfit.com for like all the wads on it. Yeah, yeah. um, 2008 or so found 
gymnastic bodies uh, and Edo as well at the same time. Um, branched out from gymnastics bodies a little bit because I didn't, uh, I, I, I thought like there were just talking with Summers, it was like, I can sense some logical flaws. So like I just, once I spot one, I'm usually just like, I, I have a strong filter, so I usually just cut it off. Um, kept with Edo a little bit till maybe 2012 or 13 or so. Uh, I left Seattle in 2011, so that's when I last probably saw you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then kind of took like three years off, researched more into just health and got kind of like deep more into like uh, more biohacking and thinking I could maybe live forever and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and then probably around 2016-ish, I started uh, you know, kind of like getting to Tlaib and also just revisiting a lot of the stuff that, that I've been through. Um, so mo mostly for fitness, it's been uh, kind of like, um, I know for sure that if I you know, do strength training stuff, I would get stronger. It, it's, it's a high feedback environment, strength, strength training. Yeah. Um, so it's easy to test things around. So I, uh, I mean, I've been testing since way back and it's probably why I, I've hopped around so much. But uh, I was like, for, for example, I had done Edo's online training 2011, 2012, I forget. Uh, and from then I was like, all right, let me ask around email, just like, 50 people, whatever, and just get all their strength training programs and see if there was a pattern. Uh, and like, if this guy has it figured out, right? And then I realized myself, wait, I can test this myself. Um, it's kind of when I started reading Tlaib and like learning about like, kind of like in certain environments are, you know, higher feedback to test, um, complexity of certain environments and things like that. Uh, and I just kind of tested it myself and I kind of was like, all right, well, can I do less sets and stuff like that. And eventually I got down to like just doing one set and I was still getting stronger. Uh, same with my fiance. So I was like, all right, well, I think that's also around time when I started talking with Phil a little more. And I was like, have you tried it? He was like, hmm, I guess I can try it. Uh, he then took it further. It was like, oh, well, maybe I can do even less days. Uh, and then eventually we kind of like, were brainstorming came out, like decided like, uh, he was talking to me about accommodating resistance, and I remember going to like a paleo effects, which I'm not necessarily, I don't go for a conference, I go for a, the, the food, the free food. Uh, I don't check any of the speakers at all. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so like I was like, I've been a few years, and one of the years it was like, there was this ARX thing, and um, I was like, oh, what is this machine? I tried it, uh, and I just did like a, a horizontal push movement. And I was sore for like seven days or something like that. I was like, just from like seven, six, seven reps. And I was like, holy shit. Um, so Phil and I were talking back and forth. He was talking about common resistance. I was talking about that. And then we were like, hey, why don't we try, you know, making each rep as hard as possible on the way up and on the way down. So even on the way down, you're still pushing up. It's just you're, you're being pushed down just much stronger than you're being pushed up still. Um, now what he's down, to, he's basically working out once every 10 days, I think. And I'm working out once every seven days, just cause it's more convenient. Um, it's more like once every six to eight days, uh, just cause it's more convenient on the weekly schedule for me. Um, but yeah, with one set, uh, and we test it out I'm like, Hey, this is working pretty well. Uh, try it with squats too. And eventually like, I think, and I'm very willing to 
see if there are other uh, other like more minimal. But like right now, we're at five exercises to help us get strong in all the vanity exercises. I like to say, um, or like vanity strength, or like just give us an exercise, and we can probably our whatever we train probably has transferred to that uh, vanity exercise now. There's obviously non-vanity exercise, like how strong you can curl your finger, right? And I don't think our, we're gonna, we're getting strong in that or how powerful we can move our eyebrows, but um, at least for the exercises that people know of, like, oh, this is transfer a muscle up or like an iron cross on Maltese or even just like a muscle up or whatever. Um, it, we're not doing those movements, but we seem to have transfer. So like if there's a movement we are missing or something like that, we'll consider it or if like there's uh, a, a smaller set of exercises than five, then we consider that too. So it's just basically been a, a testing paradigm framed around Talib, which you were um, kind of where he talks about like certain environments you can test and certain environments it may be better to kind of follow like a Lindy approach where uh, the feedback is too low that like Lindy itself is a, is a litmus test, is a tester because the idea of Lindy is that you know, whatever has been through time or a lot of replication has survived that, uh, it's basically a survival function, right? Um, so for those type of things that are more complex, like health, for example, or even some sports, uh, it may be better, in my opinion, uh, to follow the wisdom of Lindy just because of the low feedback. Um, whereas in, in a, an environment of high feedback, it may be better to follow like another typical environment of high feedback is physics, right? Like you drop a ball, someone in China drops a ball, it's going to drop at the same speed, uh, same time. But, you know, you eat a Snickers bar and someone else eats a Snickers bar and that other person's not gluten-free. I'm uh, sorry, it's uh, celiac. They die, you don't, right? Like, peanut so butter. like, it, yeah, peanut butter, whatever, right? It's, it's kind of a lower feedback environment. Uh, so those things I kind of trust. Uh, Lindy. So that, that's kind of like most of, I know that's a lot, so yeah, yeah. feel free to hit well, any of those. I think, but. I think, you know, I think one thing to really clarify here is the ideas around um, the importance of feedback. You know, this is something that I, I, I got, uh, I thought it was very interesting in, from a lot of different people who I found influential, from Taleb, from, uh, from Philip Tetlock and his book, Super Forecasting. Um, also, like Mihai Csikszentmihalyi and his work around the flow state, it's really basically flow state is essentially putting yourself in a place where you can get insight generation through regular feedback. Also, this is interrelated with like uh, John Ravakey's work and Jordan Peterson's work. I see this theme coming up all over. And um, fundamentally, I think that what we're talking about is, is dealing with dynamical nonlinear systems. Um, and how you, how, how you deal with uncertainty. I think that's f the fundamental thing that, that unites all of these thinkers is that they're thinking about uncertain, non-mechanical, non-mechanistic um, causation. So uh, just, I'm, I'm curious to have you, to unpack a little bit, like what you're thinking is around high feedback versus low feedback environments, um, how people can frame that and think about that and how that can help guide them in decision-making. Yeah, so I think that's a great question. So like, I always start off with like you, no one knows uh, anything in this world, right? Like you can take your next step and you end up in Jupiter, right? A lightning bolt can strike 
you the next second. Like you just don't know what's what's happening, right? You don't know what's going to happen next. You know, you you can become a panda bear. <laughs> I'm just making up some really, um, but anything can happen, right? You really don't know. Um, however, uh, certain things you can, in terms of making decisions on uncertainty, like certain things are high feedback where you, if you repeat the, like in anything in science, you need replication um, because just because you get a result doesn't mean you'll get the same result if uh, you were to run it again or someone else to run it again with different methodologies, right? But under the same constraints that you initially set. So you need replication and high feedback is basically something where you don't need a large number of replication to really come to a fairly confident result. Um, as with something that's lower feedback, you, you know, you may come with, so I, I, maybe there are two classes here, just to shoot, like thinking out loud, but like one is, you know, no one's coming with the same result. You constantly have mixed results, right? Another is just that the environment itself is like kind of like a power law distributed environment where like um, you may need like, for example, let's talk about wealth, right? You may need, you know, you take, a hundred thousand people and you most of you know the average wealth could be like a thousand dollars something like that mm-hmm. and then that's my fiance and then all of a sudden i told her to get me water <laughs> and all of a sudden like you get one random person out of nowhere that has you know like 200 billion dollars right and you would not have seen this person in a sample size of like a thousand, right? You may need like a large, large sample size. So like in those cases, it's also low feedback because you can't necessarily trust your sample, right? If each person is a replication of that experiment to test wealth, you need a lot. Um, This is where like, uh, for example, Bayesian thinking works well in a higher feedback environment. You can converge even on the same set of priors with two different set of priors, right? Mm -hmm. But it won't converge necessarily uh, in a lower feedback environment. Um, so it's, it's weird. It's like, uh, have you read Tell, tell Up Yourself? I've read uh, Anti-Fragile. And okay. um, I've started on uh, Full by Randomness and I'm aware of different, you know, I've, I've run into his thought in a number of different places, yes. Right. So like um, he talks about it more in Black Swan, um, but he talks about like, and, and it's all like fairly intuitive stuff that he talks about. I don't think anything is necessarily out there i mean you can read his technical intro which he just came out with and also his like footnotes where you can see the like graphs and like look at skew and ketosis and stuff like that but like that's more for like people like me who are like super interested in the math but like if you're not like it's he basically separates the world into like mediocristin and extremistin where mediocristin is like uh everything is kind of like normally distributed right so like most things are centered in the you know, most things are, everyone is making a thousand. What's up? I think that, um, uh, the way you're pronouncing it is going to be hard for the, uh, the, the audience to necessarily understand mediocre is Stan, like mediocre and extremist Stan is an extreme. Um, we sort of have, have two worlds that we encounter, right? Exactly. Wealth is, uh, is extreme high distribution is, uh, is mediocre is, is you know precisely nobody's uh, 30 feet tall yeah it basically you're never going to find one person that's going to be taller than all the other people combined yeah. but you can find one person with the wealth of 
all the other people combined. Uh, so it's, it's kind of, it depends on the world you're living in. So like, you know, if, if the field of interest is like strength training, for example, um, I consider that uh, fairly mediocre. And you can, you can test easily. Uh, replication is easy. You, t you know, when you're getting stronger, maybe like, you know, you hit a bump and, you know, there's a little bit of noise one week from the next, but like, if you wait six weeks and you're not getting stronger, you know, there's something wrong with the program. It's, it's not like, you know, like, unless you have like, you know, the coronavirus or something like, you know what I mean? Like there's, you, you, you're fairly out, but like, you know, maybe you're doing handstands or something where it's, you know, uh, it's a little bit, um, you, you, you may, you could be like, Oh, here's a new technique, right? I'm going to try this new technique I learned and you're not getting better, but, and you may confuse that. Sorry, that's my ring doorbell. Turn that off. Do not disturb. Um, you may just get like, hey, oh, I tried this new handstand thing and I'm gonna see if it works or not. And you're like, oh, it didn't work for six weeks. But maybe, you know, there's, it would have worked a little bit after that, right? Like you just may need a little getting used to it. Like it's harder to test. Although handstand, I wouldn't consider super high feedback. You know, like MMA will probably be much more high feedback than handstand or health, right? Uh, nutrition and stuff. Handstand maybe. So I'm sorry. Strength training is is relatively easy to get clear feedback on. Hand exactly. is less easy to get. Yeah. On. And then you could get really far, right? Like you could get to history, which yeah. is like the lowest feedback. You're like, oh, well, you know, if, what if Adolf Hitler didn't have his coffee that morning? Would he have not done this, all this stuff? Well, to test that, to, to replicate that, you need to go back in time, right? So like that has probably the lowest feedback, right? So historians, I probably trust a lot less. I'll just look at the observations and not necessarily what they say about why right it's kind of that phenomenology versus uh theory right like in lower feedback i'll i'll trust just the phenomenology but in high feedback I'm, I'm willing to like maybe entertain some theories but even then I'm, I'm generally more of a uh phenomenology type person okay let's talk about phenomenology versus theory for a second i found that somewhat confusing when i uh, ran into uh Taleb's work because in philosophy, phenomenology refers to a specific school of philosophy, like Edmund Husserl and Martin Heidegger, and their ideas around, um, you know, like uh, Jonathan Pajot uh, is a very big phenomenologist uh, who, 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 uh, you know, he he thinks we see, we experience the world from a phenomenological perspective. So what do you, you know, something he might say is the Earth is flat almost all the time. Right. And his point there isn't that that science is incorrect in that the earth is actually a globe, but that our experience of the world is of a flat world where the sun rises and sets. We experience a geocentric world. And then in order to um, in order to understand ourselves, in order to operate in the world, we have to be able to understand at this phenomenological level, as well as at the level of the theory um, or, the, or the science. Now, it seems to me that the way that Taleb is using this term phenomenology is, is somewhat different. It's not yeah. the same as like Husserl or Heidegger's phenomenology. Um, it, it's more about trusting observation or fact versus the theory of the mechanism of that fact. Is that correct? I'd say so, yeah. I mean, I'm not familiar with the, the philosophers you mentioned, but um, I'm, the way I look at it is, here's an observation, and that's, 
in some sense, like barring what I said, where like, you know, even if you found the black swan, it could be just that you're drunk and everyone in the world is drunk and there really is no black swan. Uh, barring that like craziness, um, it's basically indisputable observation. Uh, that's that's kind of what I treat phenomenology as, like to the point of non-craziness. Obviously everything is disputable in the end, but uh, I treat it as indisputable evidence, whereas a theory is more like, well, there are many theories to explain that indisputable evidence. So it's more like an N to one or one to N, like an and, uh, observation or phenomenology is one and the N is the theories. There are many theories that explain that. Like for example, if the uh, an observation can be that the earth is round and a theory can be, you know, like what, the earth got shaped by these meteors or, uh, you know, like we could come up with many reasons for why the earth may be round. Um, but, you know, the it's indisputable that the earth is round, that, that type of thing. Uh, with that said, you can also get more specific to the individual, right? Like you can't necessarily trust you can get to kind of in the weeds and say like, you know, I've actually never personally been to space. So I don't know, you know, like, you know what I'm saying? Uh, so like, let's ground that in a, in a, in a something that most people in the fitness audience will recognize. Right. So if you uh, foam roll your hamstrings observation, you will experience some increase in range of motion. That's phenomenology, phenomenology. Um, if you so a theory is that this is because of slide is what they call sliding filaments theory that basically there are layers of 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 connective tissue that have adhe adhesions in them and that you're breaking up those adhesions which is causing this increase in range of motion now that theory uh which was widely promulgated is definitely not true as far as the evidence that we currently have um but that doesn't actually mean that your hamstrings don't increase in length right not yeah. in length but increase in range of motion so you can continue to use your foam roller i wouldn't really recommend it um, i don't think it's a very high value technique but the observation that the foam roller increases range of motion isn't dependent on the mechanism which you propose for that range of motion increase Correct. correct yeah there could be many many different mechanisms for that and and one thing i i'll add as a caveat which is inconsequential to what you just said but as a caveat would be like i would basically uh, uh append that um that phenomenology phenomenology with you know these studies or i myself when i roll the foam roller uh the i get this increased range of motion instead of uh you know like saying all oh, just because of that you know the observation was on that you know certain methodology with that certain sample person or whatever right but like that's that would be indisputable at that point in time now obviously the when to when i roll to my hamstrings feels better doesn't necessarily imply you know causation it's just more like that's what happened right and and it happened with this person and no one can argue that because that happened that type of thing yeah yeah absolutely it's, it's, it's an important point so let's talk about uh about lindy right um so you mentioned this earlier my understanding like uh i love this observation right with uh with living things basically the older they are the more likely they are to fail with artifacts or cultural institutions the older they are the more likely they are to continue right so if you compare any book to the bible 
uh, the likelihood that that book will be read in a hundred years is far, far less than the Bible. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. You know, unless maybe you're talking about the Tao Te Ching, but <laughs> or the Quran, yeah. which are similar, right? <laughs> the older the book is, the more likely it is to continue to be read. That's, that's kind of how I, I see it too. Like, you know, like things that with a shelf life, you know, you're not gonna, you're not gonna see the, that Lindy um, concept working. Uh, Lindy works best with like, uh, you know, technologies, as you mentioned, artifacts or books. Um, it could even work with like species, for example, like the human population has survived here for like, you know, based on many different observations, but like two and a half million years. So we're probably going to be on the earth for like, you know, another two and a half million years uh, until the, you know, coronavirus wipes us out. We call it human. I mean, exactly. It may just be like 40,000 if you, but yeah, it could, if you're referring to just like, you know, a certain, um, but, but, but basically it could work with like that general concept, but yeah, it would definitely not work with like, you know, shelf life or a computer, but it might work with like the computer, as uh, you know, the concept of the computer or something like that. Uh, like, you know, computers, laptops have been around for like what, 20, 30, 40 years. They'll probably be around for another 30, 40 years. But mm -hmm. the wheel has been around for, I don't know, 10,000, 20,000 years. I, I, don't, I don't forget what it was, but it will still be around for, you know. Six, uh, between 4,000, 6,000 years. Gotcha. So it'll still be around for, you know, four, 5,000 years or so. Um, I think, yeah, basically what you said, Lindy doesn't seem, doesn't apply necessarily to shelf life. So where, where in physical culture would you think like you, you kind of divided where you, there's the areas where we can test easily and the areas where we can't test easily and in those areas the heuristic is to think you know what's more lindy right correct correct yeah so like for my, my thought is basically you know you propose a field to me for example uh, strength training um for that field you you also have to propose you know uh a, a certain set of metrics so i can you know, run my science experiments, I can disconfirm or not, right? So like, uh, if you just say like, this thing will make me better, then I, sorry, that's astrology, right? That doesn't really, I need, I need a way to, what, what is better, right? So for example, like, I say, you know, I want to have a program, uh, this program will make me stronger in most vanity uh, strength-based exercises. Uh, you know, that, that has it's not super well defined but like most people understand what that means like is your bench press stronger is your overhead press stronger is your planche stronger it's like you know there's people know what that means right uh as a brief uh detour like um i'm not sure which book to leave mentioned this in but like he talks about uh socrates versus uh fat tony i think where like socrates is always like give me the exact definition and you don't really have to give the exact like most people know what you mean when you say most vanity-based things, right? But if you just say this thing, it'll make me better in this thing, like that, that's loose, too loosely defined that even Fat Tony would be like, I have no idea what you're saying. Uh, so give me a way to run my science experiment uh, and then give me a field. And then most times, most people will know that like this is low feedback, this is high feedback. Like you can say like MMA, right? Like I will get better in MMA. How do, how do I test that? Well, like in a battle where I'm fighting, I'm not versed in, martial arts by the way in any way but you know so let let me know when i'm saying stupid sure. stuff but like point is like if you and i were to spar right and then like uh with within the rules of mma you know there's a list of rules right i'm sure like you can't like do certain things like gouge people's eyes maybe i don't know but like within that set of rules allowed to uh primary rules not allowed to eye gouge <laughs> bite 
uh, fish hook. Um, then there's some things like you can't strike to the back of the neck. You can't do down. Oh, interesting. Elbows. You can't kick a downed opponent or knee a downed opponent. Interesting. Um, uh, I don't think you're allowed to do small joint manipulation. And uh, there's some weird rule around strikes to the throat. I mean, if you're throwing a strike out of range, like, you know, if I, if I hit your throat because I'm just throwing something at your head, it's okay. But if I'm like targeting your throat somehow in a very intentional way, maybe that's not not allowed. I'm not 100% sure on that one. But yeah, there's rules. Right. Yeah. And within those set of rules, you can measure better by saying, you know, I usually win like against this other person having trained with this methodology, right? So then you can test it. Now that I would say that's a higher feedback environment. Like, you know, someone gets a lucky strike, at least from what I've heard, like if it's a more striking like thing, you can, it could be fairly random sometimes. And then, it, you know, it's not particularly uh, high feedback. Uh, so higher feedback is an environment that is harder to... Get the same replicated result, yeah. I'd say. Um, so like... This is... Um, this is a confused, I'm a little confused by this because in anti-fragile, he's talking about the fact that, you know, large organizations tend to, uh, um, tend to act, tend to basically become corrupt or decrepit, let's say over time because they buffer themselves from feedback to the point where they don't have sufficient information to actually know which direction to go. Like the Pareto distribution, which you mentioned earlier says, 20% of your employees produce 80% of the benefit, right? So this is a very important thing to be able to identify who's actually producing the majority of the benefits. Now, once an organization gets over, you know, I, I think the I think it's something like a hundred people. Uh, this becomes extremely hard to do. Actually, it becomes extremely hard to tell. So a lot of times, a company is under stress. They lay people off, and unknowingly, they lay off a bunch of the, the most valuable employees because they have no good way of sifting because the, the data set is too large now. I mean, I guess maybe that's what you mean by high feedback, but um, the way that I guess I read it was, uh, it's when the feedback, when you become blind to the feedback or the feedback is not clear enough that you no longer grow effectively. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that for sure is true too. Like in, in your example, it's like, you know, confounding variables, <laughs> confounding variables may be like at play where like you, you're not trusting the results and you may need to run the experiment or whatever, you know, the large corporation tests again and again, right? Just due to all these confounding variables, you know, like when you have, you know, more than 100 people, like obviously you're going to have way more complexity. Um, uh, interestingly, completely different uh, orthogonal to our discussion. The other like like I guess uh, annoyance that Talib has with like large organizations is just that this the larger it gets, the more of an externality cost it has on you know the the population, and as a result of that, uh, the more incentive the government has to bail them out. And then, as we know, one of the like one why we like Lindy so much is there's a, a fitness function where something things die, right? And, and the death of things makes the you know the general thing stronger uh, um, so when you have uh, but you know like an organization that's extremely large uh, that has a large externality cost if it goes under uh, then the government has an incentive to bail them out and then if they're bailed out they have no you know they have no death function right so I mean that that you can see that too a lot in certain even high feedback environments for example like strength training right like um 
the nice thing with strength training is so wait now you're saying oh yeah i started diverging yeah what were, what were we talking you, about you, just before I, that? i'm just trying to uh, i'm trying to nail down how are you you're using the term feedback because it sounded like you were saying strength training is low feedback which high feedback high they, feedback sorry but then you think mma is high feedback i mean uh, MMA, sorry sorry mma low feedback did i say high i meant low I meant low. I'm sorry about that. Great. Okay. Yeah. You had it reversed. That, that was, yeah. what I, thought. I mean, it, it's interesting. It's, there's another way to look at this, which is, um, what, what you're looking at really in, in strength training versus MMA is there's lots of feedback in MMA. It's just that you can't, and even really with a large organization, you might have lots of feedback, which you don't have is a very good sorting system for noise versus signal. Right. So you can get lots of very clear signal in your strength training, but there's so many sources of complexity in something like MMA that uh, that it's much harder to sort noise from signal. Yeah, it could be it could be a noise signal thing. It's it's to me it's unclear, but like you kind of just know. Like when someone tests, you know, like say, oh, this you know wushu shit is like the best. Uh, it like it took a while, right? Until like. I heard like some crazy people, whatever, like find Gary went together. Right. Like, yeah, I just wrote about this. Um, so like, yeah, I guess what I'm saying is, but even then you, you, it's not clear that that's the better thing. You, I mean, obviously they've gotten a lot more people to test around the world and try it, but it could have just been a fad. Like it, it's potentially possible that, you know, he just got lucky and then other people tested it and they got lucky Obviously, the luck runs out eventually. No, no, but like, so. um, and I, I, again, this is not my field, so I don't. This one event, we have to look at like the whole the whole history of these things. Um, but I, I get what you're saying, right? There's always the potential for. It's a uh, spectrum, I guess, is what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, my, my, and like, I obviously, again, this is not my field, but like, what, what I mean by spectrum is like certain things. Everyone can unanimously agree. It's like okay, this obviously you know lifting this weight will make you stronger right mm -hmm. and this another interesting point with this is like uh i just wanted to touch on it before i forget was as i started talking about the fitness function there's there's also the progress in a field right so like um even though uh strength training is high feedback sorry correction from earlier mm -hmm. even though strength training is high feedback it may be low progress uh in terms of let's say we want to find the like most uh minimum workout right because you if you as a uh, an observer can just like watch a few people that are strong and they all look strong and then you can just choose one and no matter what almost what you, whatever you do in strength training like as long as you do some resistance training you get stronger right so it's hard to differentiate between what's really the more efficient workout thing that gets you all the vanity strength right so as a result, the fitness function is not, uh, it's not great because you don't get deaf, right? When, when you don't have, uh, you know, crap die out, then, then everything looks good, right? So the progress is low. <laughs> it's a good <laughs> so, model for the, uh, for the fitness industry. It's a lot of- Exactly. I mean, I, I got this kind of from finance, but like basically uh, in finance, when a lot of, uh, when interest rates are low and- uh, money is everywhere for everyone to have, and you, then no company becomes bankrupt. You can always borrow money cheaply, and people value you highly, and you get money, and you always have money, right? And then like a rising tide lifts all boats, and then like every single company, there's like no bankruptcies or anything. You don't get 
you know, crap to die out. So like, as a result, like you, the system becomes more, uh, in, in terms of finance, more fragile. In terms of fitness, I'm not sure if it becomes more fragile or anything. Like, it's just people just don't get strong as fast or they put in more time. But, like, in terms of finance, the system becomes more fragile, right? Because then you have that one bankruptcy, you know, chains to another, et cetera, right? So, like, I, I think it's important uh, for a field to make progress by having, you know, uh, fitness functions, which I applaud, you know, those Gracie people because they basically put a fitness function to the test for, like, those, you know, crazy Chinese martial arts or whatever, right? Like, um, if you don't have that, then you may have replication in your field. I'm not saying MMA has high replication, but I'm just saying, even if it has high replication, if you're not putting a survival function to that, then you're not, the field is not making progress, right? Uh, so so it's, 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 it's something to consider for high feedback, low feedback. I mean, the replication there. I'm sorry? Can you find how you're saying uh, so replication. So um, what do you mean by replication or what are you referring to in this particular context? Yeah. So replication, I'm referring strictly to feedback. So like high, rep high replication, meaning you need a lot of replication is low feedback. And where you don't need a lot of replication is high feedback. Um, and then I'm also now taking it to a second order of thinking where within the field itself, regardless if it's high or low feedback, or high or low replication. Um, sorry, there's a chopper passing by. I'm not sure if you hear it. But no. regardless of the you know, amount of replication needed, the field itself needs a fitness function to progress. Uh, otherwise, it, it won't necessarily progress just because you don't have the, this is also why I'm no longer, I, I'm kind of against you know, having humans live forever because you don't have a fitness function, right? So um, it's also why I'm against companies getting too big because they'll get bailed out and they'll never, you know, they'll never die out, right? There's no fitness function there. Uh, so things like that, like I, I think to make progress in a field and to tell if a field has made a decent amount of progress, you know, on top of the Lindy metrics and all these other metrics with decisions on the uncertainty, uh, another one could just be like, is there a fitness function in this field, right? So like, even though I can see strength training as high feedback where like, hey, we should know by now that, you can do what Phil and I do, which is, you know, work out like 20 minutes a week and get, you know, like really strong, right? Like, mm -hmm. um, and, but people still haven't gotten to that. Like, why haven't they gotten to that? It's like, it's almost, it doesn't make sense to us, right? But it that does make sense because there's no fitness function that really, you know, creates death scenarios, right? In, in, in strength training. So I wouldn't necessarily, you know, not look to like the next Oracle in fitness just because, of the low, low fitness. Might be the wrong way to think about it. And just, just thinking this through, right? So what you guys are interested in is doing enough to get stronger, right? Um, for, for, for strength stuff. I think he's also interested in MMA. I'm not particularly interested in MMA. Um, Let's just talk about strength for the moment. Right. Now, for elite power lifters, there is a fitness function, right? They win the meter, they don't. Correct. Like, or, or, or weightlifters. Right. Uh, and what you see in those fields, and this is sort of one of the, you know, I like the fact that you guys are applying these, these heuristics and thinking much more statistically uh, to this. But I think that, that um, the way that I look at it is you can essentially say your training boils down to your overall load and how you vary that load. And that load is a combination of um, the intensity of the training, the volume of the training, and the frequency of the training, and then the density of the training. Right. So you understand. So by, by density, I mean, like if you do it, if you do 
you know, 300 yards of sprinting in one set, it's a very different workout than you do 300 yards of sprinting in 10 sets with five minutes rest between each set. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're managing this load. Now, Louis Simmons has produced extraordinary results, right? Using a very specific type of protocol there. And then the next gym has done something very different and produced uh, really good results. You know, Michael Yesis uh, does the one by 20 program and uh, you know, single joint movements, all single joint movements and people who uh, make people stronger specifically for sport and work, particularly with young people, find that that program has been extraordinarily successful for them. Um, now, when you have a meet and the meet is, so the, the, so powerlifting when it comes to strength is high feedback, right? Yes. But most it's, people's. And most, has a fitness function. Yeah. Um, most people's goal in strength athletically isn't the expression of the strength in the weight room. And that's where the question becomes much more difficult to define. Exactly. So like, this is, I totally agree. So basically, you know, with powerlifting, you are literally, your goal is to, you know, get the bench, deadlift and squat. Is that, yeah, if I recall when I, my powerlifting days, but like essentially you're, you're getting those numbers. So, and everyone's doing that. And there is, you know, a meet to test, right? So like trusting the industry of what the Lindy of that industry or whatever, like what is the method to do, or even just testing yourself because it's a high feedback environment will work. So you can both trust the industry. You can also, you know, test the method yourself uh, in that case. However, like you said, if your goal is not necessarily to be the strongest in powerlifting, but just to have uh, the strongest for mine is to be uh, as strong as I can, in, in, not, not as strong as I can, to my specific, uh, I guess, science experiment is to find out what is the least uh, amount of time I can spend to still get strong in most of the vanity exercises. So powerlifting would be a subset of that. Uh, for example, or powerlifting, you're not gonna see them do a full planche, right? But um, it's so across all the vanity exercises that we can think of, uh, not the eyebrow, like the rock, right? But like, you know, planche included, book bench press included, um, stuff like that. So like in that, in that case, I'd say there's less of a fitness function just because there's no meat that tests your vanity stuff, right? It's mostly, I mean, if you consider Instagram a meat, you can, but you know, typically uh, that that's, I would, there's not really a, a meat, right? So, and even calisthenics, they just really, calisthenics meets that they're, they're, they're testing calisthenics. They're not necessarily testing, you know, how strong is your bench press, stuff like that as well, right? So in terms of that, there's not really a great fitness function. And that's kind of where I'm like, my, my kind of, you know, it's, it, to me, honestly, it's a very small focus. It's, it occupies less than 1% of my time. Large part of my time is in, like, in finance and stuff. But like, you know, if for fitness, that is where I will occupy my time. And in that case, there's high feedback, low like, you know, tests for like survival, right? So like, I don't trust industry, but I will trust testing myself. Um, that, that, that's, I guess, what you alluded to, the difference between like powerlifting versus, you know, more gym goals, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm I, like, I suppose, you know, I, I follow Phillips, uh, Phillips stuff and, and, you know, he's always talking about getting those free gains. Um, 
And I'm, I'm always kind of like, what are the gains that you're aimed at, right? Because my aims are, are uh, have a few different aims, but at, at the highest level of abstraction, my goal is actually to improve hum, who I am as a human being. So I'm trying to develop self-knowledge, develop self-control, develop virtue through physical practice. And so I marry physical practice with mindfulness practices, nature connection, community. Um, and, you know, I don't have a perfect testing system for this. Of course not. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think anyone does. Yeah. It's like but, the search for. Yeah. It's, but I'm yeah. paying attention to how my physical practice impacts the way I act as a dad, the way I act as a, as a husband. Right. That, that's a great goal. It's, it's very, um, I think it's the most important goal. I think that fundamentally what takes us, what keeps us in any physical practice is the sense that it has a, a impact on our character that's meaningful to us. Um, you need proximate goals between you and that ultimate goal because there's just a lot, it's, it's noisy, right? Um, so, uh, so then you can dig down and say like, okay, you know, I want to be able to, to jump further. I want to be able to run faster. I want to be able to do these, these routes. Now parkour, you know, and martial arts, which are kind of the, the, the main heart of what I'm doing, um, and a little bit of team sport mixed in there these days. Uh, they're, they're, you know, they're basically dynamical systems and they're, they're, they're. What system? Sorry, I didn't dynamical, hear that. Dynamic systems. Okay, dynamical. Sorry, I heard a knock. <laughs> no, it's not very linear and you're, you're, uh, I'm exposing myself to, very novel things all the time, right? Um, so my goal is to be really good at this stuff, just to, you know, and also, you know, I, I do it because I, I, I really enjoy it. I wanna just be able to do stuff. Like my goal is not to spend less time training parkour, right? My goal is to be able to spend more time training parkour. Mm, because, I see. Um, because it's what I enjoy. So I want my body to be recovered. I want to, to, uh, to be able to handle it and to go into that flow state and, have an awesome time on the trees as much as possible. Right. Uh, same thing with martial arts. Um, now, I'm you know from a from a body weight strength perspective, I'm very weak. Right. Uh, like I can do a few muscle ups. I can. It's pretty strong. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying, <laughs> it's stronger than probably ninety nine percent of people. Sure, sure. From a you know from what you guys are doing, it's not it's not impressive. I okay. like I said, uh, you know, um, I can do muscle ups. Uh, you know, I can deadlift probably, well, uh, if my back was healthy, I could deadlift probably 400 pounds. Um, that's definitely pretty strong. That's actually pretty strong. <laughs> I'm 20, uh, by the way, or 215. Oh, um, I, I forgot that you were that, I, I remember you were tall. I don't remember yeah. you were that heavy. Yeah. Um, Still pretty good. Like I can do a D, like, you know, 10 second tuck plunge, right? Whatever. Uh, so, you know, my, my parkour work doesn't have super high transfer to these these uh these vanity exercises but i have I a question is that uh strictly uh those numbers are strictly from um the stuff that you do or you do on the side like extra stuff as well i'm so, just curious for my own yeah curiosity. so i've done um i've done quite a bit of strength work over the years but i've also taken long periods off uh, off of strength work so my deadlift at the highest point was 440 pounds gotcha and i didn't deadlift for two years and you still have it and i yeah i did 365 uh, okay. came up very, very So quickly. there's probably some transfer if otherwise you've lost a lot more probably. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what, what we notice with parkour athletes is basically if you take a parkour athlete who has a, you know, like a one and a half times body weight standing broad jump, they'll be able to deadlift basically two times body weight. That's pretty good. That's cool. That's pretty that's, much. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, squatting is much more inconsistent. I can see that. It depends on the structure of the guy. 
Gotcha. I with good squatting structure, we'll have high transfer to squat, but a long limbed guy, which a lot of really good parkour athletes are not really well. Oh, I see. Um, it's interesting. I haven't pressed in ages. My like best press ever was like 145. Um, and I'm, I'm strength training right now. Uh, and so like, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to get the bar into place on my back and so gotcha. I'm up to 135 on, uh, on, um, on the split squats that I'm doing. Mm, that's pretty good. And, uh, and so I was like, oh yeah, well, I'm going to try and press it. I'm going to try to press it. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, that's, that's, you know, I can wrap out five, five and 135 now. So I've gotten stronger for sure without, without training that at all. Like I have not done a press in five years. Mm. Um, and also, so it seems like there's some press carryover as well from yeah, parkour. I also haven't been doing any hand balancing or handstand pushups in ages. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah. But what I also notice is that like the, the, the things that are important to me in the development of an athlete, which is elasticity. Um, Just a quick pause. I have, uh, my, I have zero, just so to clear any confusion in case there is. Uh, I, have n I have no claim that what I do carries over to being a good athlete. Okay. Uh, but anyway, continue, continue. Good. That, that, so that, that's my question is like, what are what are the gains? Like for me, I want to be a good athlete, right? right. I want to be able to, like, you know, I can train parkour for years and then go dunk a basketball because I'm explosive and, 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 uh, and, um, and have high elasticity. Right. I, I train, I, I've had so many people who come into me with, from like Ido Portal style, you know, movement culture style strength training programs who can deadlift, um, you know, two times their body weight and, can't jump at all like right. zero elasticity gotcha so yeah so i'm like that isn't to say that i don't think that that what you guys are doing is valuable i'm not like here to to, to smash on it i mean i'm really interested in it and i think that uh like i've actually been incorporating some of the ideas so right. I, i'll say yeah so just, uh, i'll just tell you like so i'm training i'm i'm doing an upper body strength right now my lower body strength is uh is being programmed by Athletic Truth Group, and it's multiple day, multiple sets, multiple days a week. Um, it's working well for me, um, but I'd probably go to a minimalist approach to trying to approach the same things in the future. But for strength training, I'm doing um, uh, uh, eccentric archer pull-ups mm -hmm. uh, with, um, you know, basically I don't hold the tuck plunge; I just press up into the tuck plunge, come down, press up into the tuck plunge, come mm. down. Gotcha. Um, pike pullbacks. Um, and uh and muscle up transitions the muscle up is an extremely important technical in skill parkour right right what i'm doing um and uh yeah definitely been progressing really nicely on one one set of that uh once a week so it's right. a 30 minute workout that i go through which is awesome yeah so to answer your yeah. question that you alluded to you know like what what <laughs> additional transfer is there, you know, beyond the vanity stuff. So to Phil's credit, um, he is looking into, you know, additional transfer. So he does do like jump tests, sprint times, stuff like that. Uh, but stepping back before I touch on that, um, I think there's like, kind of like what I was saying, like to run a science experiment, we need some, you know, like uh, we can always say like our ultimate goal is this, whatever, right? But like, uh, some some of that is hard. It's, it's more subjective, so it's hard to run a science experiment on. But like, you know, to be a better athlete, I think that in itself is context like specific. Like, 
I, I personally, I don't know if there is like, you know, a program that will, we can ever be able to test to see that you're a better athlete in all the vanity athletic sports, right? So like, for example, if someone says, oh, what's a better athlete? And you're like, you know, does, does this make me a better chess player? But no, that's not, that has nothing to do with athletics, right? Or like, does this make me a better StarCraft player? Am I faster, like actions per minute? Like, do I get more button clicks? Like my finger dexterity gets higher, right? You probably say like, no, that's, that's not a measure of athleticism, right? But like, um, if we were to go with like uh, a Fat Tony, non-Socratic measure of athleticism, it probably include all the common uh, sports. And I think it would be kind of hard to test that in my personal opinion. So like, for example, you can say like MMA doesn't make me better than that. Doesn't make me better swimmer. Doesn't make me better ping pong player. Doesn't make me better basketball player, right? Like it's kind of hard to come up with a test that will kind of really tell that it will be a very low feedback, a long time to get like that test completed. Um, even looking at Lindy, it's hard to tell from that perspective some of these sports are fairly modern right like the rules of mma for example are fairly modern uh much different than i'm, I'm assuming greco roman wrestling rules at the time right mm-hmm. um so i think we have to like if we were to run a science experiment if we were to be scientific about it we would need to frame it under some context and if you were to like say you know frame it under like maybe the context phil is looking at like hey does it improve my sprint time jump time um explosiveness with certain uh things that he can measure uh and maybe that's what he terms as better athlete well you know maybe what crossfit terms as a better athlete does it make me you know do a metcon until i'm dead right you know like or you know like or does it make me better running through the you know nature and parkour and stuff i, I think we need some context right or does it make me better at you know mma or whatever uh because otherwise it can't be in my opinion we can't it's basic astrology and at that point like it's an, it's more of an ideological thing um, and less scientific. So like, this is why I say I'm not making any claims that this makes me a better athlete. Cause one, I don't know what better athlete exactly entails. And two, I'm not testing for any uh, specific context. Like I'm not even claiming that it's making me a better martial artist or a better ping pong player or anything because I'm not testing for that. Uh, so I'm not going to make a, a claim that I'm not testing for. Now, Phil may make the claim that I'm a better athlete under certain contexts, like I was saying, sprinting and jumping. Um, and perhaps you might make the claim that, you know, the stuff you do makes you a better athlete under the parkour context, uh, where you can measurably say, like, how well did this person solve some problem, some route problem, right? Like, like did he cross it at a certain time? Or, you know, some, some I don't know parkour that well, but like, you know, basically some measure. We, we run, you know, we do we run routes and we time them. Um, you know, I, I, I just published something, uh, an article on my blog called, uh, you know, um, aliveness in the universal human athletic blueprint. Right. So that's my proposal about how we can generally look at athleticism, how we develop it. Uh, be fun to, to discuss. How yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm willing to discuss whatever uh, you want to discuss. I mean, uh, pro- uh, perhaps another time you need to read the article, but, uh, um, <laughs> but, uh, but, 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 it's, it's a big and synthetic vision. So it needs, it needs that, uh, we need to go in and start asking how you do this. Now, for instance, I can just tell you from personal experience and this is anecdote. So take it, you know, appropriately. I, my experience of having done martial arts extensively, 
gone away from martial arts for nine years almost, where I, that's not true really. I was teaching it and training it with my students, but much less. Mm. And um, then, but then gone back after extensive parkour experience is that parkour absolutely made me a much more dynamic martial artist because my ability to express force and to manipulate my body through space was improved. Mm. And that fundamentally, Look, like you can, you can look at it this way. The locomotion is the center of any sporting activity, right? So no, you got to move. You have to, you have to move your <laughs> body first before you can effectively strike. If you're a plant, you're not going to, et cetera. Yeah. If you cannot, you know, you we're working with, um, I was in jujitsu class and we were working on a, uh, a, a sweep where you were, you were on your back. The guy was standing and you were spinning around and you had to, uh, transition from a horizontal spinning action or a vertical spinning action to a horizontal spin. You know, it's horizontal to vertical in order to come up the guy's leg and use your legs to knock him down. Right. And this was very easy for me. Now, you know, maybe it's just genetic. Maybe I have really good, uh, you know, coordination, but almost everyone in the class couldn't mm. recognize the distinction between the vertical and the horizontal component. And so there was just a mess because they haven't spent an extensive amount of time learning to roll and control their axis of rotation in multiple ways. Right, right. So I found that easy. And then all, not only did I find it easy, I could see how everyone was failing and then I could help them in a way that their sport coach couldn't help them because he didn't understand locomotion mechanics in the same mm. way. That I did. So that's the way that I see a direct transfer. Um, MMA, right? If you look at uh, a lot of team sports, there are elements where, you know, like if you're a football player, you're a lineman, you're going to have to swim through the other guy's arms, hit him, move past him, right? If you have basic striking grappling abilities, that's going to help. Even basketball, there's a lot of off-arm fighting, a lot of basing, getting your hips under someone. It's all basically grappling. So I tend to think that there's a lot more uh, common ground between athletic activities. There's some things that are not transferable at all. Like becoming better at MMA won't help you with swimming or vice versa, right? Swimming doesn't really help you with anything other than swimming. <laughs> um, I mean, to be honest, I don't know, but I can see that. I can, I, I can agree with you just from thinking you, about it. <laughs> you can build like the size of your lats and then you get the potential of that, that tissue to become stronger under a different environment, right? You build higher potential for strength in that tissue, but it's, um, it's, it's less transferable because it's such a different environment, right? In every other sport, it's you in, it starts with you in the ground. And that sport's you in the water. Totally different. Right. Um, so this is my anecdotal experience setting up tests um, or you know just thinking like a good Bayesian about these things um, is, is a really useful way to start at least thinking about these claims so you can guide yourself through the training this is one of the, the, the discussions that Phil and I had was we're talking about warm-ups right um, can you get rid of warm-ups or is it, a, is it, um, does the warm-up serve a purpose? And, and my argument was that from a Bayesian perspective, if the, if the injury rate, like if you have a very low injury rate, even if you double that injury rate, it could be very difficult to see that in, um, in, you know, an N equals in, in your own practice or even working with a couple hundred clients. Right. Um, so, so I think there's a, there's a balance there of like, you know, 
here's here's the scientific research that shows that injury that that you know achieving a certain body temperature maybe reduces injury rates in athletes before they take on high intensity activities. Compare that to your um, you know phenomenological exp uh, experiments, and then you compare that to uh, you know whatever else, and then you 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 have to kind of play a Bayesian game. Before actually before we go any further, I'd love for you to explain the Bayes theorem and how you're thinking about that to the audience. Because I think it's, most people don't know what that is, and it's an extraordinarily useful tool to start thinking about how you think under uncertainty, which is everything. So I would first uh, preface with, I'm not a Bayesian, okay. uh, nor am I saying that I'm against Bayesian approaches, um, but my understanding of it is, you know, you have a set of priors that, you know, certain uh, things that inform you of what's gonna happen probabilistically, mm -hmm. and then as you gain new information, uh, you call those like posteriors or whatever, and that updates your probabilities. Um, the hope is that you come to true knowledge, which is basically if you have everyone being a Bayesian in the world and everyone starts with perhaps different set of priors, maybe intersecting set of priors, with enough posteriors, everyone converges to that same true knowledge. That's how I, I've always seen it. Uh, I've never studied it in depth. Um, to me, uh, I don't use that personally in my form of decision-making, but I'm not necessarily against it either. Okay. Is that, uh, would you, same boat, same page? Yeah, I mean, Bayesianism is basically thinking about prior probability, right? Like, so uh, I wish I could, I think there's a beautiful example that has to do with, uh, with like um, mammograms, right? So like 80% of people who get a positive test on a mammogram. Are worse off. No, so I, I think if I remember correctly, the statistics: eighty percent of people who get a positive test on a mammogram end up having cancer, right? So, if you get that positive test, how likely are you to have cancer? And most people would answer eighty percent. But you have to account for the base rate of people who right would have gotten cancer anyway, who have cancer to start with. Right. And once you account for that prior probability, actually, that mam uh, mammogram is relatively uninformative. It does. It has way too high of a false negative rate to give you um, a meaningful answer under those statistical conditions, right? Because you have to compare not only the population of people who've been tested, but you have to compare it to the population, uh, the base rate of cancer in the population at large. Right. Once you compare that, um, it turns out that, that that's actually not a very informative test. Interesting. I did not know that. Uh, I was gonna refer to a different thing about mammograms, but <laughs> interesting. So um, don't quote me on that. People can go look up that. Oh, no, I won't quote you on it. I, 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 I'm not, yeah, I, I'm just saying to the audience, right, too, like, don't, right. you know. Uh, you have to compare against your prior example, right? right? So that's where, where prior information is, is really important. And a lot of medical decision-making is done without attending to prior information. People think that the test, you know, the test is meaningful without understanding the information that it's in context of. Right. That's where a lot of iatrogenics happens, right? Um, right, right. <laughs> Taleb's term. Um, so that, this is why it's important to me to to apply Bayesian thinking, right? So um, you know, if if someone says to me, "Hey, I stopped doing warm ups and uh, and nothing happened," right, and it's great, you know, well, you know, the first thing that pops in my head, and this is this is an emotional thing, and not necessarily. Um, a great prior, but um, I tore my I tore my um, I tore my hamstring once sprinting in Shipping foam rolling. <laughs> uh, sprinting in in the middle of January under a really cold day. 
And I always felt like if I had done a proper warm up, that wouldn't have happened. Um, and I've just noticed that over the years that I, I've been doing a lot of my strength training without warm ups, and that seems to be fine. But for elastic explosive activities, I'm definitely leaning more towards uh, there's a very high utility to a warm up. And this is one, uh, one thing where I think it's quite Lindy. I think that if you, if you look at, you can even look at it in animals, right? Like if you watch a wolf pack or a cheetah prior to a hunt, you'll see them go through a series of opening exercises. They yawn, they get down and stretch out their back, right? They, they're playful for a little while. They kind of jump around. They don't like and go as fast as they can, right? Now, in an emergency situation, they will, sure. But also in an emergency situation, you have a completely different neurohormonal response, right? Your body's willing to take risks and it pumps tons of things into your body. So anyways, that's, uh, that's some of my thoughts on, 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 on what are the right things to think about to condition our decision-making or in fitness. Yeah, I'll touch on that. Um, so your- there's two things. Uh, first was the warm-ups and second was the anecdote on the martial arts. So maybe let's go warm first, uh, just because that's the most recent thing. And then we'll, we'll unwind the stack. Um, so for, uh, for me, I'm not making any claims that uh, you should not warm up for um, anything beyond my specific training. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just found out like, hey, I'm just going to try this without warming up. And I said, you know what? I'm willing to take the risk of being injured because I have been injured before with warm-ups. So for me, it's like, oh, I've been injured before, so I'm going to take the rest without warm-ups. Did this for a few years, um, and I said to Phil, have you tried it? Uh, and then he, he, you know, he went with it. Um, but that this is for the specific stuff that I do, which includes sprinting. I sprint about maybe anywhere from like once to four or five times a week. I only do one sprint, lasts about 20, 30 seconds. And I always do a walk to my sprint area and then I sprint back. Uh, so it may be like, I don't know, 10 minute walk, I don't know, seven, six minute walk. I don't know. Some amount of walk. And then I sprint as fast as I can back. Uh, one sprint only, usually till I hit top speed or until I'm out of breath, one or the other. It's, it's kind of based on whatever I feel like that day, to be honest. Um, I don't do that for any measurable performance way. I do that purely because I noticed we did that in the past. Um, it feels good. So I'm just going to kind of keep with doing that. Um, that one has zero scientific basis besides the fact that I'm not warming up. Uh, but I do walk like seven or eight minutes uh, or maybe six minutes. I don't know what it is. But I walk some amount of time. So that maybe that's the warm up. I don't know. But given that, I haven't needed anything additional be- beyond the walk. For and I've been doing this for a few years, a few times a week. Uh, but one sprint only, not 10 sprints, not a marathon. Right. So I'm in no way, do I make any claim that one does not need to warm up beyond the stuff that I've tested, which are uh, basically punch push-ups, rows, uh, pull-ups or sprint is almost not a sprint as well. Sorry, can you repeat that? You broke off. A 20 to 30 second sprint is almost not even a sprint. Right. I guess it depends on what you define sprint. I'll, I'll say that what I do is, I run as fast as I can until I either feel like I'm losing speed or I'm out of breath, depending on whatever I feel like that day. So losing speed will come first, out of breath will come second. Mm-hmm. Um, but one or the other, that's what I do for 20, like- you're hitting your 
peak speed because I mean generally if you're doing an effort that long athletes will naturally pace themselves if you want an athlete to hit their max velocity you're usually looking at having them sprint for seven seconds or under yeah I mean I all I know is I kind of get the feeling like ah, I'm slowing down right so I could have slowed down way before at seven seconds like you said um, but all I do is Eh, I kind of feel like slowing down or eh, I'm kind of out of breath. I'll, I'll stop here. I, I'm not doing this for any measurable performance. I'm not measuring the distance I go and see if I go farther. I'm not measuring my speed. Um, I'm literally just doing this because it feels a little fun. And I feel like it's something we probably should do just because that, that one feeling of sprinting seems to be a common thing done in the past. So like, I'm just, you know, just going to do it. Just feels fun. It's easy. It's quick. Um, that's it. Uh, but yeah, like I said, I'm yep. not sure if you consider that sprinting or not. Um, regardless of the what we consider it, that's what I do, and that's that's the only claim I'll, I'll you have make. Clients who, uh, who work uh, sprints as well. I'm sorry. You have clients who work sprints as well. I have no clients. I'm 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 have no uh, no history of coaching clients either. Okay. This is purely based on a high replication for myself and my fiance. Uh, for a few years, for a few times a week, one sprint only, walk in a sprint, um, or one sprint, one run only um, at max, at what we feel is max speed. Uh, so the, the only claim I'll make is I think it's worthwhile to test uh, if someone is going to do the exact same thing, which is a sprint as fast as you can, just do a walk and sprint as fast as you can a few times a week, and you'll probably be fine. That's, that's my uh, replicated wisdom. Beyond yeah. that, I'm, I'm not making any sort of claims on the warm-up. Um, in fact, I think uh, that one should probably, and I think Phil agrees with me here, uh, that one should, uh, for more higher feedback, sorry, lower feedback environments, such as compared to the things we do, uh, such as MMA or other athletic endeavors that are lower feedback, you should probably just trust the, the Lindy wisdom there just because there's probably some wisdom that tells you, hey, maybe you shouldn't warm up. Uh, now, of course, you can test, but like I said, it's a lower feedback environment. So, you know, you. High cost you, test. Yeah, it, it could be a high cost, and it may come like, you know, the 10th time you do it, and then you, you know, you break your pecs, right, or something. Yeah. Uh, so, I, I don't think it's worth it in those environments uh, where it's lower feedback, but uh, I do think that based on, you know, this specific thing that I've done for many years, uh, many times a week, I think the replication is perhaps enough. Now, there are some confounding variables. It could be that, you know, I built up to it over time, right, or something, I don't know, um, which could also be desirable. Uh, you know, maybe your body, if you're still used to warmers, you need warmers, which if you don't, uh, you may be better prepared at doing something without warmers. I don't know. I'm not claiming any benefits there. Um, all I'm saying, and that's just second order thinking, all I'm saying is I tr for lower feedback fields, such as MMA, whatever, I trust the Lindy that's there. Uh, boxing, whatever warm-up they do in a boxing gym. You know, whatever warm-up you do, I don't know how old the sport parkour is. If it's like only 10 years old, I'm not sure if I trust it. If it's like a, it's 20, okay, so it's a little longer. Um, and then how many athletes have done it and stuff like that and stuff and have they come to a good convergence? Um, is there enough injuries in parkour to like death rate, you know, like the survival function to progress it to no uh, warm-ups. Um, but if it's like a thousand year old sport, I'm not even gonna ask those questions. I, I can just trust the warm-ups that's been done in Greco-Roman wrestling or whatever, right? Um, so in my opinion, I would trust 
low feedback fields, whatever Lindy wisdom they have there. High feedback fields, sorry, uh, high feedback fields, you can probably test, uh, see if you get injured. Um, but again, this is all based on like a more scientific framework. Um, and that's how high kind of view it. Um, in terms of like, uh, I could go now to the anecdote, uh, but if, if you want to comment on this. Oh, I was just thinking about, um, I was thinking about, sorry, I got a little off track there because I was thinking about the idea of like, to what degree can we trust any sport to have a continuous tradition, right? So like, you know, lots, of, great Chinese, question. lots of Chinese yeah. martial arts claim to be thousands of years old. Um, and, and it's, it's really questionable how much of the tradition of what they're teaching is actually thousands of years old. Something okay. like yoga, most Hatha yoga practices seem to have been pretty strongly influenced by Swedish gymnastics, for instance. Mm. Um, a lot of the stuff that I see in like uh, traditional Kata or um, uh, like Kata, you could say maybe is Lindy, right? In martial arts, but you could also say that it, it's been empirically tested to totally fail as far as application, right, through MMA. Like, if you just do kata, you can't fight. And there's right. lots of theoretical reasons for understanding why that that's true, right, from perception, action, coupling, you know, uh, motor learning perspective. So I don't do martial arts, but my one thought there is perhaps the kata is helpful maybe for some other reason that yeah. has survived. Well, actually, we don't know. Or maybe... Yeah, I, th I, think, I think we have a very good reason why kata survived, which is that, uh, these traditional martial arts were actually taught um, predominantly in uh, a non-literary way or a non, so there were no instruction manuals. So the knowledge was codified through series of movement. Right? I see. So the movements themselves were, the kata isn't what teaches you how to fight. The, tata, the kata is how you remember all of the techniques that you teach how to fight with. It's probably a better way to understand that tradition. So I'll, my response to that would be, that's a good theory. Um, but I guess my question to you then is, do those Chinese martial arts, did they even have a survival function? Maybe that's probably the reason to survive if it's a weak, like if it's unnecessary, let's say, let's pretend it's unnecessary. Um, perhaps it survived just due to the fact that there was no fitness function to like, you know, kill the idiot that was practicing Kata when he could have been doing something much more useful, right? Um, or it could have just been the rules of that martial arts, for example, like, Maybe kata is very useful for, I, I think wushu is a martial art where you don't fight, right? It's more like a demonstration. Well, I mean, wushu is a, is a um, it's basically an invention of the communist state in the last like 60 years. You know, wushu just- But there's no like, there's no like objective fitness function, right? It's more just like, oh, that looked pretty, right? Or something. Is that, okay, yeah, so- Yeah, wushu is, wushu is an acrobatic martial arts display. Gotcha. So for example, in that case, you can see why Kata might survive. Um, there's just no fitness function. It's just like, keep doing the stupid shit that we've been doing. It's fine. You're not going to get killed. And if you do that in like MMA, you'll get killed, right? You could be spending your time doing something way more useful. Um, I, I mean, I don't, I'm not sure what it is. And you're probably right. Kata may not be useful. I, I don't know martial arts myself. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, that's just, anyway, yeah. tangent. You were, you, were, you, were, you were going? Yeah. Um, no, I was just thinking about that. I was thinking, uh, yeah, I was thinking which, how could you, how could you confirm the lindiness of different things? Mm. Wrestling has a really good, uh, wrestling, examining wrestling practices across the world is probably one of the best places that people could go to, to understand 
what are the Lindy practices in physical practice? Because wrestling is basically cultural universal. There's an extreme, uh, there's a lot of convergent evolution in the way that people wrestle. And if you look at the training systems that are developed for wrestlers and you see them over and over again, um, then that, that might be a good way to try to understand what is Lindy in this, this, uh, this world. Yeah, one, one way I would look at Lindy is like kind of, you know, like how long it's been, right, obviously, uh, but also like how many people have done it. Yeah. Um, and then also like the frequency that it's done. Um, if it's not, if basically all of this are proxy for rec replication, right? More people have done it, more replication, more frequently, more replication, more time, more replication, stuff like that. Like, and then also convergence, like, so for example, like, let's say, we could go like, oh, well, people are still eating uh, 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 margarine today, but that doesn't necessarily mean margarine has Lindy in the, if we were to rephrase Lindy as for specifically margarine, be like, you know, what uh, is healthy, what is claimed as healthy to eat and still is, right? So like, if you look at margarine, there's so many, so much evidence that seems to suggest otherwise that I would say has failed the Lindy test because it hasn't, I would say the amount of time it has lasted was without, you know, strong evidence suggesting otherwise is probably like, you know, a decade or so. But like after that, it was a lot of evidence came up, right? Well, Ordrin uh, started in around World War II, I believe. Okay. So maybe 60 years. Um, but like the point being is um, it should be, just because it's still alive today, just because kata is still used today, yeah. there's going to be idiots. Um, but as long as there was a fitness function, yeah. uh, we have enough, the weight of the evidence suggests otherwise. And that would be where I would say it's Lindy time ended there, right? Yeah, yeah. So like you were saying like with convergence and stuff like this, there's going to be like crappy schools that still take, teach crap. Um, but if there seems to be some sort of convergence amongst all the schools that's transcended time and, you know, international borders or whatever, I'd say that will be something It's a complete newbie. I will be like, I'll, I'm going to do that first. I don't care what you say. I'm going to, if they say warm up, I'll do that. Right. I, I will follow those things until I know better or whatever. But like, until I feel like, Oh, this is a high feedback environment. I can test this myself, which I don't think it is, but I'm just saying, say I get deep into martial arts and I feel it is high feedback. Right. Uh, I may skip on the warm up, but like, to, to be honest, as a complete noob, I'll be like, hey, this looks like a low feedback environment. This, this, this specific warm-up with this specific thing has transcended time and borders and still done today across many cultures frequently in every single, you know, sparring session or whatever, then I'm, I'm going to do that. Hands down. I don't need, I don't need to know the mechanism, uh, how the tissues get warm or shit like that, right? I don't need to know that. Like, I just need to know, like, has this been done and it's the, some reason it survived and as long as there was some survival function which i would say that if there is not a concrete survival function if it's been ten thousand years i don't need a concrete survival function but if it's been like a hundred years i want to see that there's a survival function there um so the shorter the time the more constraints I, i'm having unless it's a high feedback environment um, the more low feedback the, the less the time it's been around the, the more uh, the more I'll, I'll see like, eh, I, I'm not sure if I'll trust Lindy fully here. Um, the more the time has passed and then I'm like, okay, yeah, sure. Or, or if it's high feedback, like physics, like all right, tomorrow someone can discover something and I'll trust it right away. Like it's fucking physics. Like this, you know, like it's true that like, for example, not anymore. Right. <laughs> I mean, like I know, like for example, physics as it used to be. 
Yeah, like for example, like Newtonian physics, you know, Einstein kind of said like, as you approach speed of light, you know, apply the Lorentz transformation, stuff like that. You need to apply a little transforms and stuff or like quantum mechanics, you can actually run through a wall if you do it enough times. Uh, the smaller you are, uh, the more likely it is to happen. But like, you know, barring these instances, physics is fairly high feedback, right? Especially if you preface it under a specific context. Like if I'm of this size and I run to my, if I'm of this size, sorry, I'm yelling, and I try to run through, and I try to run through a, you know, a wall, I guarantee you, you will not go through that wall, right? <laughs> like, it's pretty high feedback, so I don't need Lindy necessarily for that. If someone comes out with some sort of new thing, you, everyone's tested, it's gonna get, come to the same result. It's like, okay, it's good enough. Um, but the lower the feedback, the more uh, time I want, and the less the time there is, and it's the low feedback, then I want to see survival functions. I have more questions to ask. Um, I may not even partake in that field, to be honest, it's just too new. You know, I won't read a book that's like new. Like, it's just, I, I'm, it hasn't been tested. Like, I'm not gonna waste my time to read a book that's too new, uh, unless it has like, some, somehow it like struck my interest and then maybe I'll read it. But even then I may not, you know. Um, even iconic figures that are in this day, like Talib is, he made an exception uh, just, because I was talking to people and they told me about him and stuff like that. And I didn't know about Lindy back then. So I guess I got fooled. Um, but the point is I probably knowing what I did now and not knowing anything about Talib, I probably wouldn't read Talib to be honest. Um, so yeah, like I, I, I think the only place I'll trust practitioners that are alive now are ones that are in high feedback things. Like if you're doing brain surgery, if you're in physics, uh, plumbing, carpentry, things that are like high feedback. Uh, but I'm not going to trust any, like a self-help person, for example, uh, that's alive today. I'm not going to trust Tim Ferriss, uh, stuff like that. I'm not going to waste my time on Tim Ferriss and things like that. Um, basically, like that, that's kind of how I view Lindy uh, in terms of what's Lindy, what's not. How, when do I apply criteria on top of that in terms of decisions on the uncertainty? Sure, sure. Um, I was curious to hear your response to the the anecdote. You were going to go into that, and then I want yes. to talk a little bit about um, about the the Big Five and how you guys are are programming that. And then I'd like if we have a little bit of time. I'd love to touch base on finance and coronavirus before we're done. Oh, I love that. Yeah, yeah. So anecdote. Um, I think your anecdote is actually quite interesting. Um, like I was saying, there's the Socrates and there's the Fat Tony. Right? The Socrates is like, well, you didn't specifically define what's better and but you know like as an athlete you can kind of tell like hey i can tell that i got better like no doubt like i did parkour i haven't done nine years of martial arts like i feel i got better like mm -hmm. no no doubt right so like obviously there's memory bias and all that like confirmation bias and all this anchoring effects and stuff we can talk about and be like oh well this 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 i'm not gonna be picky on that like i'm gonna just be fat tony and be like i trust you 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 know your sport you've done martial arts long enough you know you got better right like i don't necessarily need a scientific test as long as it's under some context which you said was with that vertical horizontal thing and stuff yes. like that my only thought on that and i have again no dispute with all that stuff um is if we were to if the question was phrased not as does parkour make me better but what is the thing that can make me better the best in all these things right like then i could say like well you could have just done nine years of martial arts you would have been way better right like sure. you would probably agree um and maybe if you did nine years of martial arts you'll be better in parkour as well i don't know right like it's hard to say so like I think perhaps maybe my the experience i would i definitely think parkour transfers to martial arts 
better. Okay. Uh, I mean, I, I, and I would trust that. Because I, I work with lots of people who've done nine years of, of martial arts. I, you know, I, maybe I'm a, a unique case because I started at six years old with martial arts. So I have like deep instincts around martial arts. And then I've just been right. massively ramping up my athleticism and awareness of space. Right. Yeah. Anyway. I mean, so the, the reason I trust you more is, you know, the, the number of years you've had in this and you've, you're yeah. a little more high level, right? So like, I can trust you that, you know, parkour probably transfers better to martial arts than martial arts transfers to parkour. With that said, it's unclear to me if like, say, two, two scenarios. One, you have three sports, parkour, martial arts, and another one, right? Sure. Maybe that other one transfers better to all three. Well, maybe some combination of the three is the best, right? For example, like, I don't know if there's one single exercise that will transfer to all vanity stuff, uh, but perhaps doing four or five is like the bare minimum. Well, perhaps doing, you know, parkour, martial arts, and uh, sport three, uh, 10%, 30%, and 60% in that ratio would be the best of your time. Oh, I don't know, right? So it may not even be that. basically field sports. That's basically what we're talking about in our, um, in our in that article that I pointed you to is mm. essentially you need to be able to move your body through space through complex environments read them you need to be able to move effectively with other human beings and be able to manipulate objects and you need sports that that create good perception action coupling in all three spaces um, it's a, it's a theoretical <laughs> argument yeah I was gonna say it's, it's it's a theoretical argument it's a model um, and it, it's it's certainly possible that what you just said those three things if you work on those three things you know, you would be better in all these ground sports that you, that you said, right? Like, it's certainly possible. I'm not sure. I'm not going to claim that it is or it isn't. Um, but, yeah. but like, it certainly is it's a possibility. And if I had no other set of information and I really wanted to pursue ground sports and let's say you're the only one out there, you know, then I'll, I'll try that first. Um, but, but like I said, like, I, I'm not, I wouldn't say that, I'm highly confident in that, that that's the perfect model. Um, nor am I saying it's not. Yeah, yeah. No, no, it's great. The interesting question isn't whether my model is right, right? Or whether you think my model is right, because, you know. Um, my opinion not never really matters. your expertise, right? Um, what's interesting is, is there a way to create better phenomenological models or better Bayesian structures so that we can experiment and get the feedback more effectively to test whether that model is true and whether all the different subcomponents of the model are true. In my opinion, I think it has to be bounded. Um, otherwise, I just think the problem, it basically, um, so you, I'm not sure if this was an anti-fragile, but it wasn't Black Swan, but it's, it's also something I kind of knew before that. But like, say you come up with a model, right? A model, like I said, uh, I'm not sure if I have to say actually, has like a certain set of assumptions uh, to, to bound it. And then you go, I'm gonna apply this model to this, 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 and see which is better. Um, the thing with a model is there's error, right? Now, certain models, certain classes of models that are like, for example, on the normal distribution, uh, even if there's error, the sensitivity to that error to change the results is minimal. Mm -hmm. Meaning like, say your model is wrong in this area or this area, well, even if you changed it to make it correct, it doesn't really change the results that much. Yeah. However, in like parallel distribution, such as Pareto, as you mentioned earlier, or any sort of fat tail or things with like, that are more, uh, that are not normal, normally distributed, uh, those type of distributions, uh, if you have an error, 
right? You can go from the average person for a thousand dollars to Bill Gates with you know a hundred billion dollars, right? That's this this the error sensitivity is quite large. As in, even if you came up with a model, this is where I am not okay with Bayesian for these classes of problems, certain class problems. Certain class problems, Bayesian is totally fine. And I think it's innocuous or even at best, like really useful. But certain class of problems, it's dangerous. So like if you apply Bayesian thinking, uh, for example, to a fat tail distribution or to a model that uh, perhaps could have high sensitivity error, high sensitivity error, where you would maybe need a, a ton of replication, a ton of samples to truly converge. In those cases, it could be harmful if it's a, it's a finance uh, or, or it could be not useful, um, which is fine if for business marketing, but like not useful in terms of like being the actually uh, useful to the client to provide them something you know, that is more better than what they were doing in the past, right? Um, and so I think what you said though, like if you were to bound the problem to like the things that you are specialized in, which is like martial arts, parkour, uh, uh, you know, any those type of things, I tr I trust your model for those things, and I I and I I'm assuming the sensitivity error is probably like low. Um, I, well, I guess it, it depends. I don't really. To be honest, I don't know. It could yeah. be high. Yeah. To be honest, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not expert enough. To yeah, yeah. No, that's fine. I, I, I'm always interested in this, you know, my question. So, you know, what's your goal? How do you have a clear goal? Are those goals actually meaningful to you? That's one of the problems. A lot of times people set out towards something, but it's not actually what they, what they care about or what deeply, deeply motivates them. So how do we set you up so that you're really self-developing in, in a direction that's meaningful to you? Now, how do you set up ways to, um, get virtuous insight generation, right? Where you're, you're not bullshitting yourself, you're going the opposite way, right? You're creating better feedback. Better feedback loops is a really good way to think about what we're trying to achieve. So we have our model. How do we get those better feedback loops to make sure that that model is, is, is verifying itself over time? Um, so that's one of the reasons why it's interesting to talk to someone who thinks deeply about this type of thing in relationship to, to this world. Um, but given that, you know, what I do in particular isn't so familiar to you, uh, you know, we might have exhausted that for this particular conversation. Yeah, yeah. The one thing I would say I find interesting with goals, and I'm not against goals, by the way. Um, but there is, a, I would say, an hydrogenic towards goals. When you are so goal-driven, you may, you know, what's that phrase? Miss the trees from the forest or forest from the trees? Yeah. Miss, um, the, uh, miss the forest from the trees, yeah. Right. I think um, a lot of times, uh, for example, uh, even when I would, was doing strength training and stuff like that, some of the best uh, discoveries I've made were serendipitous, like they just came out of nowhere. Um, had I been so goal-driven without exploring on that serendipity, like it was like, I think one time I was like, oh, I only did one set and I didn't get to work out for like quite a number of days, but I still got stronger and I was like, oh shit. Now, if, if I was so goal-driven to make sure I get, you know, that three, three days of workout a week or whatever, like, I may never have test tried that out. But if serendipity comes knocking on your door, it's sometimes maybe okay to, you know, veer off path. That tinkering is sometimes what creates positive black swans. Now, obviously, 
certain environments, there are no such thing as black swans, uh, mediocre, mediocre, for example. But certain environments, there are. So like, it may not matter as much in strength training, but like in finance, uh, if you ignore that, you could be missing a large opportunity. So like, I think, I think it's important to be mindful of serendipity, not be laser focused on the goal or even proximate goals, because sometimes the way to your goal is actually roundabout. Like it's circuitous. It doesn't necessarily take the proximate easy path that you see. It may actually take some other path that you may not know until hindsight comes later. So familiar with um, explore, explore versus exploit models or um, dynamics. I, I'm not, but I'm guessing um, what I'm talking about is more explore. Yeah. So basically what you're saying is that if you, if you're too goal, well, one way to look at what you're saying is that if you're too goal focused, you end up exploiting something, but it may not be the optimal place to be exploiting in the landscape. So you have to have an explore function. Exactly. This is something that comes out of like um, AI research and game theory. Yes. Right. Yes. So you need, you need that to balance these two things. Yeah. Um, you need some turbans to like see, What's around? I'm yeah, a software engineer, so it. I actually follow that. <laughs> I was a former software engineer, so I followed yeah. that. So um, then we also have like, you know, uh, so another way to think about this is basically practice versus play or discipline versus play, right? So you want to balance some sort of um, ordered consistency, repetition with some way of regularly introducing novelty. Um, this is one of the reasons like I, I actually think it's funny. Um, Jordan Peterson and uh, is probably my biggest intellectual model, right? And, uh, and I actually think that his insights and Taleb's insights are extremely convergent, but Taleb hates Peterson. And I, I don't actually, know too much on Peterson, to be honest. Yeah, and I actually understand why Taleb hates Peterson because, you know, Taleb's thing is about, uh, people over narrativizing, right? And Peterson's thing is all about how we understand things through the narratives. But mm. I find the narratives very powerful. And his base, one of his fun, central, his central, part of his central narrative is essentially that you can look at being as being divided between um, chaos, order, and the individual that mediates between them, right? So what, so when you become too ordered, things become stagnant, right? When you become too, uh, too, chaotic things start to fall apart right so you deteriorate in either direction the way you know the Tao, like the is is essentially that place of perfect balance which is is very much like mihai chiksmahali's flow state and it's really basically you know a lot of what what taleb is advocating as far as i can tell right you 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 need to introduce new sources of information regularly that can test what you're doing but you also have to have structure right barbell strategy all that stuff it all looks very similar to me um, I'd love to, to chat with you about it more. Uh, I know we're getting low on time here. I mean, so, I, I have a lot of time, but it's up to you. <laughs> and we can always chat in the future too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can have another chat. Um, but, uh, but, um, so I think that, you know, what what I discovered through my physical practice. You, you remember Stephen Lowe, I, I imagine. Yes, I know Stephen Lowe. Yes. So Stephen uh, introduced the idea of smart goals to the parkour community: specific, measurable, actionable you know, uh, realistic time sensitive. Um, so I went out and I got, a, I had a ton of goals, you know, and I, I was like, in, in this amount of time, I'm going to have a 35 inch vertical leap and a four, six, 40 and a straddle plunge and a 500 pound deadlift. 
Um, and I just went and systematically failed to achieve any of them. <laughs> and I'm I have done that. Competitions, right? Um, and while I was failing to achieve any of these goals, I discovered that I fell in love with moving in trees. And then I put out all this video of me moving in trees and then people all over the world associated me with that. And now there's like worldwide <laughs> exploring movement in trees. So I, uh, you know, I failed my goals and achieved my dreams, if that makes sense. Right, right, right. Um, and, and so I started for a while, I just completely went away from goals. I said, you know, uh, follow motivations. But motivations are, are, are fickle, right? They also, you, you, you can, you fall apart, right? Like eventually, like I started getting injured and I was getting overweight and all these things are happening that weren't good because I didn't have enough order. Right. So find this balance between order. And that was when I encountered Jordan Peterson's work. It was like the idea of the heroic archetype, the, the person who can forthrightly confront the chaos of being and the tyranny of order and bring what is good out of it. That was a goal big enough to be oriented towards. That was the type of goal that could, that could structure everything but within that goal it naturally invites you to play with that exploit versus explore right mm. i'm getting some training it's working um should i exploit this training or should i go explore and see if something else might be better so you if you only exploit you get stuck in local optimum yes if you only explore you never get anywhere right or you never you, you never make progress right so we have to find that that balance between them. Yeah, I mean, I could definitely see an intersection with that uh, explore, explore model and kind of like similar to like what I kind of, what I go by, which is I kind of tinker and then it's like, oh, this seems like it's working. All right, let's, let's dig deeper. All right, now it's kind of like working. I'll play around, tinker some more. Or I, I reach a happy medium where I'm just like, oh, I'm, I'm good here. I'll, I'll try some other field that I'm interested in and, I may just be like, oh, I'm going to start looking into more in this thing with finance. I'm going to try to do more of this thing with software engineering or something like that. It may just be orthogonal to, you know, physical uh, activities and stuff like that. So, like, uh, that's basically like kind of how I go. I either get bored of it entirely or I dig deeper or I tinker in that specific field and look for uh, other opportunities, if you will. Yeah, yeah. So... We got on very philosophical. Let's get a little practical for the audience here. You said there yeah. are five exercises that you've found basically carry over to all the strength exercises, essentially that people care about, right? Right. At right. least most, most people will care about these exercises, right? If you're right. a rock climber, maybe this isn't going to be everything that you need. If you're a, you know, like for me, I got to do a bunch of ankle stuff and knee stuff specifically. Yeah. I would say it's more like carry over to the, the Instagram, the Instagram stuff. So if yes. you want to show like your bench press or you want to show like your plunge or you want to show your overhead press or you want to show your deadlift, uh, this is probably the least amount you can do while still being able to explore other things or exploit other things that you outside of strength and conditioning. It's basically to get you out of the strength and conditioning world mm -hmm. and more to the things you want to do. Yeah, and that's, I mean, I'm, I'm super down with that, right? I want to spend lots of time swinging around in trees and kicking people exactly. and dancing and as little time as possible lifting weights. I don't not exactly. enjoy lifting weights. I just enjoy it a lot less than other things. Right. I enjoy it to the amount of time that I've allocated that week. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, like other things I prefer just like reading about finance, reading about software engineering, talking to my fiance, going for a walk, meditating, stuff like that. Um, that those bring me more joy and personal fulfillment 
I think, than uh, years in the past where I did spend more time in just strength training or even trying to get into like, you know, certain other athletic things, which I'm not, and then I'm just like, ah, I'm not too interested in, right? Like you, you've, you've kind of figured out what you want to do, but at least I can t- spend the least amount of time on that. Cause I can say like, I don't think I need more time. Sure. So what are your uh, big five exercises? Yeah. So basically um, they are, we, we, we do planche push up kind of, um, we are so horizontal push. We do, uh, a vertical push, so handstand push up or overhead press. Um, do uh, uh, what's it? Um, one arm chin up work or pull up work. So vertical pull, and then a, a and then a horizontal pull of rows, and then squats. So basically, what I do is, and it's not exactly the same as Phil, but it's it's basically the same concept. Squats? Are you doing uh, straight squats or split squats? Straight squats. Um, as to grass literally ass to grass, not actually when people say ass to grass, but it's not really. It's like literally the butt touches the heel, <laughs> ass to heel. I think that that makes it more accurate, um, but that. Um, and basically what I do is around once a week, sometimes it's longer, sometimes it's shorter. There's no you know, goal or teleologicalness to it. It's more just around the week, generally Wednesday or Thursday, because those are usually the days where um, I'm just like, oh, I'm going to have more free time. Monday, Tuesday is more grocery shopping. Uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, maybe hanging out with friends and stuff like that. Um, so Wednesday, Thursday, I generally try to get it around then. Uh, and what I do is, it's fairly, in some sense, primal, but more out of convenience. Uh, while preparing food in the morning, uh, Lauren, my fiance, and I will actually do our workout. So in between sets, we prepare food. So it's kind of like chasing down our food and cooking. You know, like it's kind of like really like, as if you were hunting and gathering, right? Um, and then we eat right after that. So the workout is basically once a week, uh, we do one set of planche push-ups, one set of the, the four upper body stuff, um, around five reps. Sometimes it'll be three, sometimes it'll be four, around five most of the time. And it's all uh, fully basically as if you're doing one movement the whole time. So, f- but you somehow, do five. So for example, uh, let's talk about planche push-up. Or actually, let's talk about weighted chin-up because this might make more sense. Let's say you'll do a weighted chin-up, then I would start from a hang. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lauren will hold me and I'm pulling up as hard as I can, mm-hmm. but she's holding me so hard that I'm, I'm barely moving. It takes about five, six, seven seconds to get to the top. To me, it, t- it takes 10, but when I watch a video later, it's, it's actually five. <laughs> and then on the top, I'm still pulling up, but I'm going down because she's putting so much force, right? So basically, I think I'm still going up, but she, she's, she's pulling down on me. So it's really one movement. I'm never doing a negative. I'm basically always doing a positive. Uh, it's just she's putting more force. And on the, going down takes also a long time. Um, I usually do like uh, one or two reps take like a break, make some food or whatever, come back do another one or two reps, eventually ending around five reps. Uh, so, and then for certain exercises, I add some variation to it, the reps. So like, for example, planche push-up, I'll do uh, on parallettes, uh, I kind of at a deficit. Mm-hmm. And then I'll, I'll do two of those. And then I'll do, sorry, I'll do three of those usually. And then I'll do two on rings. Okay. Um, again, same 
method. Like I start at extremely hard. I unlock my elbows first because you have to unlock your elbows. And I unlock my elbows and start at like some ridiculously hard position that like I'm trying to push up, but I'm just going down. Um, I hit the end range of motion and then I come back up as slow as I possibly, well, as fast as I possibly can, but I'm just going really slow because the progression is too hard. And then, um, and then I may, and I usually end my plunge push up with, so parallettes, rings, and then I'll do a floor isometric for one set of like 20 seconds or something, starting at the hardest and then moving to tuck plunge. Um, so that's a variation where I add rings and parallettes and just the floor. Um, and then for example, for one of chin up stuff, I'll start with the one up chin and then I'll do a little weighted chin up. So like three one up chins, one weighted chin up. And then one, I got this idea from Phil, uh, towel chin up, um, again, all with that same intensity, uh, for, uh, overhead, uh, for handstand pushups, I do usually three handstand pushups and then two, um, overhead presses. Uh, with dumbbells, Lauren kind of holding me. Uh, and that's about it. Like the rows is, it's, you can see my Instagram video. Basically, I just start in a full front lever. And as I pull up and get weaker, I tuck, 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 tuck. Mm-hmm. And then I stretch back into a full front lever and drop slowly. Well, because I'm still pulling up. Um, and I think that's all the exercises pull up, row, push up, and handstand push up. Yeah. And then squat is fairly simple. I use chains. Uh, and as well as I use Lauren. So like Lauren's standing on a platform, I have chains on, she pushes down on me. I'm pushing back up as hard as I can, but I'm just going down. And then as I come back up, she spots me a tiny bit um, at the bottom. And then usually the rest of the way, I just do all myself because I have the chains. So it adds that progressive hardness. Um, And then the moment she doesn't need to spot me going back up, I add weight. So that's how progressive squats. And that's really it. Like, it, there's, there's nothing really special to it. It takes not that much time. Most of the time, preparing the food anyway. So it's like no time is wasted. Uh, and I usually do them on different days. I just do Wednesday, the upper end, Tuesday, uh, Thursday uh, squat. Um, but for example, today I worked out. Wednesday, I didn't work out yesterday. So, like, it, it's, it's this fluctuation. But that's basically it. Squats take about, like, I don't know, anywhere from five to 15 minutes, depending on, like, how I'm preparing the food. Because I usually do is, like, two reps two reps, one rep, sometimes two reps, one rep, one rep, one rep. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's basically it. And it, it seems to work. Nice. So you've been finding free gains with this and uh, yeah, no warm ups, no cool downs, literally do it done. I have now the strongest planche I've ever had. Uh, my front lever has gotten weaker. Um, mainly because I didn't work out for a long time. And when I was younger, I focused more on the front lever, less on the planche. Because my, my best front lever was like a 15 second full lay. Now it's probably like seven or eight. Uh, but my planche is stronger. It's so that's the strongest planche I've had. Uh, when you so, were training, like when you were doing say Ito's work or Christopher Sommer's work, what was the volume that you were doing per week? Compared oh my God. So, <laughs> You know, if, if you ever watch this, um, I never did his full program. I literally <laughs> did like half his program. I'm still making progress. But dude was like, oh, that's, make sure you, you, good job that you did my program. And I was like, yeah, thanks. You know, I actually never did your program, <laughs> did half of it. Uh, but the volume was intense. It was like, if I were to do his entire program, I think it was like probably like three hours, like six days a week or something like that. One, like every two or three workouts, you could do a half 
volume or and then there's accumulation intensification phase it was just like it's just almost like he took like it's he created a rube goldberg for like fitness like to be honest like uh it's like you intentionally complicated uh it but it'll work i mean it's it's very uh like <laughs> it'll work <laughs> like if you put in the time i'm not sure if it'll work better than what i do it might uh, I, I can certainly say you put in more time uh, what i put in in about i think i calculated this what i put in like three years is what he probably puts in in one week i literally calculated this so like you know <laughs> that's a lot of time i could spend making millions of dollars like you know like yeah. you know like it, it's, it's it's time that's you know could be <laughs> significantly spent on other endeavors besides being like an animal if you will <laughs> literally an animal <laughs> people, people you know i've talked to a lot of people about uh, one arm handstands and you know people said oh three hours a day for oh, yeah. years or something like that. And I was like, dude, how many belts in jiu-jitsu could you get at the same time mm. for one skill? Yeah. How good are you yeah. get at parkour for one well, even like any, any sport, pick a sport. Yeah, pick Game. a sport. Pick, pick even a mental topic, like make, books make money. Be? Yeah, books. Like how much, how much finance could you learn? Could you become a software engineer in that time? Like could you get a college degree in that time? Like, like like at, at some point there's the distinction between you know animal and homo sapien <laughs> like homo sapien stands for like wise man or something right like <laughs> like are you a wise man or are you just replicating what a monkey can do right at some point like you have to think like what makes humans special right like and in some my in my personal belief i i and i can't say for sure it's astrology here but like if we can at best replicate an animal i think that's saying something to be honest um and then you know like i i'd imagine we 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 had to use a little more than pure replication pure repetition right like there's there's probably something else something like what we're doing here that's not something you're gonna find with monkeys absolutely we're able to generate ideas in a way that no other animal is exactly so um that's awesome yeah so it sounds highly efficient uh, i definitely think it's worth people giving a try. Uh, five exercises. I noticed Phil's a huge fan of the split squat and the RDL, which I guess would you would be in the same lower body family as the squat for you. But you're just using the the squat. So I did try split squat. Um, interestingly, I have terrible flexibility, mm -hmm. so I did it on a platform on, with a front front foot elevated platform. Mm -hmm. um, my squats went down, but but. Lauren, my fiance, she has really good flexibility and she didn't do it on a platform and her squats went up. I told Phil the results of my experiment and he said, did you do it front foot elevated? And I said, yes. And he said, hmm, maybe that's, that's a possibility. And I said, could be. So perhaps um, if you just want to gain, I, I don't have good split squat flexibility, but I have really good uh, Asian squat. You know, I'm Asian. Asian squat flexibility. Um, so for me, I just prefer to just do the squat. Um, additionally, squat takes less time, but I guess if you like, say, wanna build a split squat, I see no reason to say, for example, instead of doing five squats, why not do three squats and two split squats, right? Like, the, 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 I think uh, my thought is, don't add to frequency, like don't add volume. Try to see if you can do it with that same set of efficient time and just replace one of the reps. So like, that's what I do right now with like planche push-ups or overhead press and handstand push-up, or like you can do squats and split squats or squats, split squats and RDL, right? Like 
two reps squat, two reps to squat, one rep RDL. Um, but add variation there, and you might get like a one plus one equals 11 out of it. Yeah. Uh, instead of having to add additional volume, like do five rep squats, five rep split squats, right? This um, variation thing is, is really interesting. Um, you know, that's a lot of stuff that's coming out of the, the, the stuff we're working on is the idea of the importance of variation, all the natural movement, you know, high variation. Um, you know, an older book you should read, Nikolai Bernstein on dexterity. Uh, highly recommend it. Uh, it talks a lot about the, the role of variation. Um, but yeah, I was just listening to uh, these guys from Emergence talk about variation in the weight room, just varying up the exercises. So I think it's a, it's, it's a good thing for people to look into. Um, yeah. At least test it. It doesn't hurt to test I wanna, it. I want to touch about on the, on the idea of volume, right? So if we go back to frequency, so using the type of training that you guys are doing, you're having success at a frequency between seven to 10, once every seven to 10 days. Correct. Um, intensity is very high is what I hear. How very long high. sore after a training session? So I honestly, um, when I, there was one time when I didn't work out for like two, three weeks recently, I was sore for longer, obviously when you don't work out for a while, um, for probably around four or five days ish. Phil's had clients that I think he told me was sore for like two weeks or something. Yeah. Um, so it's similar to ARX where when I tried it, at the paleo effects, I was sore for a long time. So you definitely are more sore. Now, I'm not saying that's a proxy for gaining strength and vanity no, exercises, no, but but you are sore. Like well, it's, it's an important consideration for me, right? Because you can't do parkour when you're sore. Exactly. So it's like, okay, well, you you gained the rest of your week if the rest of your week isn't skill training. All right. But if you're sore for five days after your one day session, for me, you didn't get anything. So I've had success on very high frequency protocols because they can keep me from exactly. Like, I'll do like a grease the groove type protocol and right. you know, three pull-ups 10 times a day. Um, right. So I think, you know, that's just an interesting thing for people to pay attention to. I'll say this, um, two things. One, that soreness does seem to subside after you get used to it. Mm -hmm. However, I have noticed a markedly decreased performance in when I just like, hey, let's see how my planche is the next day. Even if I'm not sore, my planche is significantly weaker, significantly. Yeah. Um, so with that said, irrespective of soreness or not, your uh, parkour performance will likely go down the next day. Um, with that said, there's no reason you have to do five reps. You could just do, I've actually done three reps for I think five or six weeks and mostly maintained. Mm -hmm. So, you, I mean, I can even see that, like I'm not athletically talented in any way. I can't put on muscle for shit, right? Yes. So I can see someone doing even one rep, to be honest, and still pursue the activity with no performance uh, detriment. Um, well, maybe they can like, you know, for example, say the activity is rock climbing. They can probably squat five reps, right? But like if, you know, their activity crosses all, you know. I'm going to do upper body today. I've already done a super upper body focused parkour session. So my, my, my session on Saturday for parkour is going to be very lower body dominant. So right. really you can do things like that. Exactly. So like you can do less reps or play with, you know, making your specific sport less using the thing you did, or if it does use all of it, then just do one or two reps and, and then tailor it, go up to three and then see, does it still impact my performance? No, then I'll keep with three. If so, I go to four, does it impact my performance? Okay, it does. Then I'll drop back to three. It's that, a high feedback feel. Yeah. 
that ARX machine is specifically invented, I believe, for people who are doing high intensity training, kind of bodybuilding approach, right? So a lot I'm, of what you guys are talking about. Um, I'm not sure on the history of it. I personally, I thought it was um, kind of built for laymen that just don't want to spend a lot of time. Because I, I know that, uh, what's his name? Not, not necessarily saying I respect this guy, but Dave Asprey, yeah. he, uh, he is a huge proponent of it. And also that one guy that wrote Body by Science was all about like minimalist. That's, that's, and so that's, is Dave Asprey. It's HIT, high intensity training. Starts with Mike Menser, Doug McGuff. Well, I was thinking it was Doug McGuff or something, right? Yeah, no? Doug McGuff is, is in the, the tradition of Mike Menser. High intensity okay. starts with Mike Menser. Doug McGuff is body by science, which is deeply influenced by that. Gotcha. Um, so, yeah, I'm not too sure on the history here. But what it sounds like to me is what you guys are doing with body weight is essentially. Uh, Sorry, I'm just chasing the sun. The sun's moving. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, what you guys are doing is basically a, a tie, uh, very similar to an HIT perf uh, per, uh, perspective, where you're you're chasing a very high physiological inroad from a single set um, in a very short period of time. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, not to be confused with high intensity interval training, though, because no, I'm not yeah. brooding hard at all. <laughs> not HIT, HIT. Yeah. Um, so now, in order to get that, so. You know, the idea that you're only doing five reps is kind of, um, it's kind of a red herring because those reps aren't like standard reps. Right. That it's not, I wouldn't consider them five, just yeah. pump out five. No, they're fucking hard. Yeah. They're like, they're, you know, the way that HIT guys look at this is time under tension. So your time under, your total time under tension in your workout in a plunge or in a, in a, a pull up is probably more similar to someone doing like 30. Yeah, it may be. And not only that, I would even argue that it's uh, more intense, right? Someone doing 30 may not be that intense. Yeah, yeah. They, won't, they won't be able to achieve the same intensity. But I, I would say, like, even timing it. potentially faster. Yeah, so, like, I would say timing it, like, it's approximately five seconds concentric, approximately, like, six or seven seconds eccentric. So if you add that up, that's, like, 12 seconds. So it's 60 times five is 60 seconds uh, total. I still think that's a lot less though than the, than the typical. I mean, I, can, I know it's less because I, the amount of time I spend in a week is less, right? I think ultimately also the amount that you feel drained is less uh, versus someone doing three days a week or three days of three sets a week, stuff like that. Like ultimately there is less strain. But, but if you obviously have another athletic endeavor that you, you know, for example, Say someone's just do parkour once a week, I don't think five reps will impact no, no. that. But if you're doing parkour you know, every single day, for example, I would definitely say you shouldn't do five, maybe like one or two reps. And I think you will still probably make really good gains, but I don't know, you have to test it out yourself, right? What do you think um, about the idea of like doing one rep three or four days a week? I think it's something to test for sure. I've, I'm kind of of the mindset of, uh, I wanna get just things done as, have as much extra time instead of spacing it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but I've, the, it's, it's hard to say, right? Because like even if the work is the same, it's potentially possible that there may be some non-linearities in there. So like even though this is five and this is five, this five might be much more. Now that's not to say that the five done all at once is more. For example, if you spread it out during the week, perhaps you can work at a high intensity for each of those one reps right so i actually don't know it's something to test if, if, if that's something someone's training athlete who's doing a lot of skill work 
you know, getting less physiological inroad in one workout so that you have more in the tank every day. Yeah. But getting the same total physiological inroad on that skill over the course of a week by using a higher frequency protocol. Yeah. I can, I can see that. Yeah. One rep like every other day, maybe. It, it could, it, I could potentially see that for someone that needs, like, wants to do like athletic endeavors, like a large majority of the week. One rep every day could possibly work. It would be an interesting test to, for sure. Yeah. Okay. So let's uh, let's switch from this. Um, you talked. Uh, you uh, you mentioned in our kind of preamble that you wanted to talk about the coronavirus. Oh yeah, sure. We could definitely. Let me just uh, adjust my seat real quick. Yeah, yeah. The sun has moved a lot. Yeah, I imagine. You in Austin or where are you at? I'm in Denver. 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 There's a lot of sun in Denver. There's like two. It's the opposite of Seattle. Nice. It's literally the opposite of Seattle because I've lived in Seattle. Um, But yeah, so coronavirus. Yeah, like like how do you want to broach this topic? So I I wonder if we have the same mindset on that. I'm guessing we are. I don't know. We'll see. Um, I've been monitoring the situation for about forty for about a month. Um, I'm quite concerned. I think that everyone in the fitness space needs to be getting on top of this because uh, gyms are going to be huge vectors of the disease. Uh, physical practices, you know, like I, uh, you know, I just signed up for three months of kickboxing classes. <laughs> um, but I can't sell. <laughs> I'm not going to cancel Mine. because I want them to survive. What I'm going to ask them to do That's is fair. give me the freeze it. Give me that the chance to use it in the future. Exactly. Um, so what is your perspective on, on what, like a good phenomenological, like operating under uncertainty approaches to the rise of this virus? Yeah. So I'll say this, I started following around January 20th. Um, and this is where I think Beijing doesn't necessarily is the best. Uh, because at that point in time, you may, it depends on your set of priors, but you can imagine conceivably someone coming up with a set of priors that says, oh, well, you know, it doesn't seem worse than the flu, so it's not something to worry about right now. And I'll update. I think that'd just be bad Bayesianism, honestly. That's, <laughs> What's up? As far as I'm concerned, that'd be bad Bayesianism. Like we had the numbers. The numbers don't, don't make No, sense. I'm saying like even earlier than that. When, so when I was following, it was around, I think, 400 total cases in China, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and like maybe... Yeah, yeah. A few deaths. At that point in time, I could see a Bayesian just being like, you know, I can see two Bayesians. One be like, okay, well, we've had pandemics in the past. I can see this. That's my, my prior is this is a pandemic, mm-hmm. right? A hundred percent. Another person can be a prior like, well, I'll give it like a ninety-eight percent chance that it's not going to be that bad, and two percent chance it's going to be as bad, right, or something like that. And I'll update given my posteriors. But like for me, I my methodology under low feedback, uh, high complexity, high, uh, power, like a power law distribution, right? Extremist scenario where, you know, for example, people are like, oh, this many people die every year in a car accident. You're not gonna see, let's pretend it's a million. You're not gonna see that million become a billion the next day mm-hmm. or the next month. It's gonna stay at a million. But with, in, in these type of scenarios where it's power law, you can literally go from, you know, this thing only kills 100 people to this thing kills a billion people, right? Like, it, that can happen. That's the difference between a distribution that's, you know, fairly normal to a distribution that's fat tail. You can go from one to the next without, like, the next day or something. Yeah. Um, so when I first heard of this, there was, like, 
under a thousand cases, something like that, around January 15, 20, if I forget. Um, and I was, I was, I like uh, Talib would say, panic early is better than panic late. When you <laughs> panic early, there's no consequence. Yeah. When you panic late, you may not have, even if you don't catch the coronavirus, right? You may not have the ability to get your grass-fed beef or whatever, right? Like there, there may be none left. What are you gonna do? You're gonna eat your McDonald's? Like fine, you could. I'm, I'm not against that. I'm just saying, like, if you want what you want, panic now. Get it. There's no downside, right? Uh, I so like stocking up was a huge thing in my mind. I got masks uh, way before anyone, way before it ran out. It ran out literally on like January 23rd, 24th. I got masks from my parents, um, and there were people like that go like, oh well, you know, this only kills old people, uh, but it may just be that younger people take longer to get killed, and we we're not seeing that yet, right? Uh, for example. Uh, the Spanish flu, which was only called the Spanish flu because Spain was the only one reporting cases, just like, you know, U.S. isn't reporting cases type thing. Um, it's called the Spanish flu. Uh, sorry, uh, during the Spanish flu, more young people got killed. Uh, the theory is uh, that cytokine storms, basically your own body, your immune system is so strong that it destroys your own lungs and stuff like that. Uh, but when you're older, you have a weak immune system, right? So like, it's hard to say if there's going to kill more young or old. We still don't know. Like, you don't know, even at this point, right? We don't know. We don't know. I think that, I, I mean, from a Bayesian perspective, we, you have to be able to operate off of some kind of information, right? And you can, you can make educated guesses based on the probabilities. Well, right now, this, this... Also, let me say this. People are like, okay, it's just, people say it's just the flu. Well, it's like, no, it's much more virulent than the flu and the evidence shows that it's much more has a much more, more higher mortality rate and there's high uncertainty about what the mortality rate actually is Correct. which means you should be very cautious um, if the mortality rates are correct um, it's 0.4 for someone in their 30s i believe you know so four people out of a thousand will die but this is based on the, the yeah. exactly. Just for a second, um, you can dismiss that as not that dangerous, but it it's less dan it's uh, substantially more dangerous than, for instance, skydiving, or having sex with someone who's HIV positive without protection. Right. Those are people that those are things that people think are very risky and choose not to do. Right. right. Um, a single a single episode of sexuality. Right. So. Uh, that's not actually that low risk. The reason that something like the flu, um, you know, it takes a lot of lives, but it doesn't take that many in a concentrated fashion is because it's not propagating that fast through the population. So something that has the same lethality as the flu, but which everybody gets, right? Or that everybody gets at exactly the same time, right. it's massively disproportionate on an impact. And people... People just, you know, they don't think, we don't, we don't have good priors. Like from a Bayesian perspective, I think um, a lot of the, our thinking around this ends up limited because when we don't think probabilistically, we don't have, uh, we don't have models in our heads for things like power law distributions or even really understanding normal distribution or where the fat tails are. And, and we don't have the historical timelines. Nobody remembers the Spanish flu. Now I study a lot of history so I, <laughs> you <don't> know <laughs> I realize that pandemics yeah. are an incredibly major mover in human history. 
So I, I realized that, you know, it's much better to be wrong. It's much better to have false positives about potential pandemics than false negatives. They're just exactly. way, way, way more. The false negatives are just way more costly. Yep. So there's this thing called normalcy bias, where yeah. even if someone's panicking in a, even if there's danger in the room, if no one's panicking, you won't panic. So they say one of the like most important things with pandemics is get people prepared, because they're not going to prepare themselves. And the thing, so the one thing, um, like I was saying with the young people, we won't know until all the cases actually come to full recovery and no reinfections. There seems to be a reinfection. I'm not sure if you've heard of this. No. Um, so as in, if you recover, you could get infected again. No. Uh, there seems to be a lot of cases of those. But the, but the point being is, we don't really know what the true case mortality rate is, right? Or case mortality, eh, case fatality rate yeah. is for people at that age group. We don't even know like, the R not, R not number. And if you, we did know the R not number, we don't know the distribution of it, right? So like, like a lot of that, we just don't know. So like my thought is, in situations where we kind of know it's been a lot of time, it's okay to make uh, decisions around you know some form of Bayesian uh, priors. But um, but like for example, say it's something that we just don't know yet. It's if the downside to being ready is not much to you, just take it because you don't know what the downside. The other thing is, like I said, if it's a multiplicated process. You don't know. You don't the downside understand. to getting ready for our country now is enormous, right? There's going to be, I, I saw a speculation, looking at $380 billion of losses to global GDP in the first quarter of the next year. It's pretty bad. I've like, I've been following this. Supply chains are getting disrupted everywhere. It's, it's, we're starting to see some bankruptcies. Like countries are trying to like lower interest rates and try to like inject money to save it. But you can't save like you can't use money to stop a virus. Like, yeah, well, like it's not gonna. It's very hard for people to let to have to to make cash liquid when they can't. You know, it's exactly. Possible. It's unfortunate for business. A lot of, and this is unfortunate, but a lot of businesses will fail, particularly small and medium sized ones, which is unfortunate. I mean, I don't. I wish this didn't have to be a case, but this unfortunately we built up this very fragile system a lot of debt right when you have a lot of debt it's hard to be more liquid because you need to make debt payments and stuff like that right so like that's not, it's it's kind of unfortunate and but this this is gonna happen like we're gonna start seeing bankruptcies for the first time in history like there hasn't been like any like it just doesn't make any sense um a lot of crap has built up and that crap uh, including not crap, uh, unfortunately, but a lot of crap will die out. Um, a lot of great businesses are going to die out. Too. A lot of, exactly. Unfortunately, yeah, great businesses. Parkour gym, uh, martial arts gym, movement gym space. Like these are all my friends, right? They're going to get hurt, unfortunately. I, like I know a lot of them are operating right on the margin. Yep. So yep. Restaurants. Long time and we should get off, but I, I wanted to just, while we're on coronavirus, I know, one of your big areas of kind of where you play and you think a lot and apply these ideas is finance. Yes. Um, people, there's going to be a lot of shit going on due to Corona in the financial world. Um, how would you, how would we, how should we operate financially under the uncertainty of what's currently going on? I think honestly, if you do not have, if a person doesn't have any knowledge of finance, they should just be cash liquid right now as much as possible uh, because you're, you're going to need that. This, if it, I'm talking to the average person, they're going to need that disposable income 
right? To like when they don't have a job, when stuff like that, it's going to happen. You're going to need disposable income. Now, if they do know a little bit more finance, but they're trained in like the traditional finance school, um, I would say diversification is not going to save you. I think everything correlates to one in a, uh, in a crash. If there is a crash, uh, which to me, I think there will be, but I, I can't say for sure. But if there is, I think it'll be pretty hard. Um, at that point in time, diversification won't save you because if everything correlates to one, you didn't actually diversify, you amplified your risk. Um, diversification, in my opinion, is probably better for making bets uh, than it is to save your ass. Uh, I think that's just a lot of things that we've been taught based on this you know, thing where we think that finance is investing is under a normal distribution, which it's not, um, which it seems to have been disconfirmed, uh, pretty strong evidence. So in that case, things won't correlate, uh, things will correlate to one and you'll amplify risk. So in, if you do know some stuff on finance, I'd recommend what you could do is buy tail protection, basically use like options to hedge your portfolio, uh, if you do not know how to do that, then again, just stay cash liquid and buy, um, buy you know, stocks when, when things have crashed a lot. Um, you can look into things like possible safe havens, like gold. Uh, you could put your money in short-term treasury bills uh, to get some amount of interest. Um, but beyond that, maybe you can like dabble and buy a bunch of options on random companies like small amounts of money like hundred dollars each uh or buy some bitcoin maybe it may go up uh and as it's, it's it's questionable if it becomes a safe haven or not but if it does it may go up a lot um if we're to become like digital gold um yeah that's probably the best advice i can give um but it's in this case it's better than like for example the markets drop let's see today 3.39%, which is pretty massive. Um, yeah, like it's, it's, it's gonna be a tough environment moving forward. Yeah. Cool, well, that, I think that's probably something we should, I think, I think we need to go a lot deeper to unpack that at all. So I think I'll, I'll, I'll leave that on that advice. Hopefully that helps a lot of people. Yeah, for sure. I appreciate you being on, Eric. It was a real pleasure and uh, we'll have to do this again. Yeah, let me know if you want to. Thanks for listening to the Evolve Move Play podcast. If you really like the content we're putting out, make sure to leave us a five-star rating and a review. It helps tremendously in getting the word out about what we're doing. And of course, you really want to support us. You can support us on Patreon. This is a listener-funded podcast. And through your funding, it allows us to have the best equipment and to attract the best guests and build our audience. So we really appreciate it if you do those things. And we look forward to talking to you next time.